This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Now, here's Frank Morano. Two things I experienced this weekend that have led me to where we are today, meaning this very place, this very time, this very hour. It's interesting because obviously there's a lot of very serious things happening in the world. And I follow a bunch of podcasts, a lot of video podcasts, a lot of YouTube channels of a lot of great thinkers that I turn to from time to time to see what they're saying about different affairs. So I turn on this one uh, podcast that I follow, and the person gives a little bit of a dissertation on the situation in the Middle East, and he says something to the effect of, oh, but the the media is too busy telling you uh, who Taylor Swift is dating and what Beyonce Knowles is up to. And I thought to myself, well, what a jerk I am, because I do spend some time talking about pop culture issues, talking about societal issues, to talking about some of the lighter issues in the news regarding all this other stuff. And I thought, well, maybe I shouldn't do that. Maybe I shouldn't do anything but talk about these very heavy, weighty issues that clearly a lot of folks have on their mind. And then my wife and I... We're driving out to Long Island for a family function yesterday, and the radio was tuned to this station. And immediately, there's a lot of discussion about uh, what's happening in the Middle East and Israel and Gaza. My wife runs, well, as much as you can run while you're seated in a car that and driving. She moves quickly to change the channel, and she says, I just can't. She says, I cannot keep being depressed for an hour and a half drive and hearing about how awful the world is. I know the world is awful, and I need a little bit of a break. So my hope is that a lot of you feel the same way as my wife does and that you need a break. If there's any breaking news over the course of the next four hours, believe me, we're going to bring it to you first. We're going to bring it to you uh, in a manner that I think is responsible and interesting, But if you need a break from hearing about children being killed and uh, terrorism and uh, all the horrible things happening in Israel and in the Gaza Strip right now, you are in luck because I have persuaded to return to this program a man who is a happiness expert. I don't know that there's a certification in that field, but if there is, believe me, Jeffrey Gurian has it. Jeffrey Gurian is a comedy writer, a stand-up comic, a host, an author, a producer, a director, and a former dentist. Jeffrey, it is great to see you again. Frank, it is always a treat to be on with you. Really, there's no one else I'd rather stay up late with than you. Well, that's and that's kind. the truth. I appreciate that. <laughs> I, I, even if it's not true, I appreciate you <laughs> it saying it truth. anyway. You know, it's funny, Jeffrey. 
Rudy Giuliani went on Saturday Night Live right after September 11th, and he kind of rallied not only New York but the country to New York's cause and what was going on. And Lorne Michaels, the head of Saturday Night Live, said to Rudy Giuliani, is it okay to be funny again? And Mayor Giuliani had that great line, why start now? But I I do feel (laughs) like a lot of folks – sort of feel the way I did when I was listening to that podcast, that maybe you should feel a little guilty by laughing and having a good time and enjoying yourself on the radio while there are so many people suffering in the world. As a guy that knows a thing or two about pulling people out of despondent moods, can you give us some sort of blessing or permission to have fun and laugh and be happy again while people are dying and and fighting and losing their lives and some people are kidnapped in the Middle East. Well, I'll tell you the truth. It's a struggle for everyone, and it's a struggle for me as an empath. I feel people's pain. I feel feel more than I wanted to, which is why I became so engrossed in happiness and writing books about happiness, because I've had to struggle with it my entire life. When you feel things so deeply, you're affected by the weather, by color, by the people in the room, by everything around you. Hearing this kind of news on a day-to-day basis, I can't help but listen, and I don't want to listen. I have to turn it on, and I don't want to turn it on. Comedy, for me, is a great outlet. The, the, the comedy clubs are filled with people who were there because they need to laugh. Now more than ever, because every place you look, there's something negative, and you don't know whether you're even getting the truth. You know, I listen to a certain station... I listen to WABC, and I listen to Newsmax, and I feel like I get a balanced report. I get the truth. Mm. When I turn on other stations by accident, I, I hear what other people are getting, and I know why they're not informed. There are people, I was talking to a young person recently who didn't know about Hunter Biden's laptop. Never heard of it. Right. Well, yeah. Never heard of it. Uh, uh, now, I, uh, I, there, definitely, we all live in our own bubbles. Uh, but beyond the editorial content, what can you say to people that, you know, about th- that makes them feel not guilty about laughing for an hour instead of watching bombs exploding in the Middle East? Well, because the alternative is horrible. We would all be in our, in our rooms crying. If, if we didn't do that, we have to try and lead some semblance of a normal life. And I think the people in those areas are doing the same thing. The people in Israel are trying to be very upbeat. I have friends there, and they write to me, and they're telling me what's going on. And people are trying their best in certain areas to lead a so-called normal life. Um, again, there's... <laughs> We, ha- we have no alternative, Frank. What can we do? If, right. I, if I was to dwell on it, you know, I cut out this article and it says 70, 77% of Americans are engaging in addictive behavior to cope with mental health issues due to stress. 77% of people, people are so stressed out. They don't know what to yeah, do. It's true. Every it- place you turn, there's something horrible happening. You know, we don't know what's happening with... The government, the border is open. Uh, or, I mean, just uh, Mayor Trump, Adams. You don't have to give me the litany of, uh, <laughs> well, so of things that are wrong. I got to meet wrong. Mayor Adams. I had a feeling I was going to meet this guy eventually, and I wanted to talk to him. Not, you know, egotistically. What am I going to say to him that's mm-hmm. going to change anything? You know, I mean, like it, w- it would be very ego-driven to think I could say something. But he said to me, 
you look like the kind of guy that we should share a cigar together sometime. <laughs> <laughs> and I thought that was cool. You know, and I, I've actually shared a cigar with him, and he's oh, yeah. actually a delightful companion as far as uh, as far as chatting and as cigars go, and a that, great suit. Yeah, that's it, it, no reflection <laughs> on his mayoralty, no, though. No, believe me, no, for sure. uh, you know, it's funny, Jeffrey. I happened to on uh, Friday night after my, you know, I'm on a weird schedule on the weekend because I'm nocturnal during the week, and then I try to go back to a conventional schedule on the weekend. So I end up staying up later than my wife does usually on Friday or and Saturday night, or, or sometimes I'll just get up super early and so i end up watching a lot of these wrestling documentaries because mm-hmm. i'm a, a fan of uh, classic pro wrestling and sure enough there's this documentary that it's been it's taken me five times to finish it on mick foley a terrific wrestler oh, and he's a stand-up comic too. Well, he's a friend so of mine sure yeah. enough yeah. They get to the portion of the documentary uh, focusing on his stand-up comedy career. Who's in the documentary? You are. Oh, really? And, yeah, oh. I, I'm. I'm sitting there three o'clock in the morning, uh, <laughs> trying to, you know, uh, trying to get myself in a drowsy state of mind again. And I'm thinking, well, wait a minute. I'm and you and I had just talked, and I said, oh my, Jeffrey Green is in this documentary. Am I dreaming? And sure enough, it, it, you, I, you were in it, and I was not dreaming. But that's the case when it came to the Bill Murray documentary. It, it, you're Robert the go-to Williams. expert on <laughs> comedy, comedy history, the craft of comedy. One question I have for yeah. you, though, yeah. is a lot of comedians, especially these days, yeah. they not only feel the need to be political, but their entire act is political. I mean, whether they're conservative like Dennis Miller, whether they're progressive like Mark Marin, whether they're uh, generally left-wing but swerve every such uh, every so often like Bill Maher. Do you get political in your act? Never. Never. I don't and do anything And that's a concerted strategy on your part. It's not funny to me. Right. I, and I don't do therapy on stage either. A lot of comics get up and they talk about the most intimate things. Talk about Mark Marin. The first time I saw him when he, he uh, his first show, Scorching the Earth. I'll never forget it. I was in the audience, and he talked about his breakup with his first wife, who I knew. And he said such intimate things that I was embarrassed myself. Mm. I felt embarrassed. And I was like, how does anyone have the nerve to go and do that? People loved it because they relate to it. But if it takes a lot of courage to get out on stage and expose yourself. I don't do that. I talk about things that yeah, strike Pee-wee me Herman funny. Yeah, Pee Herman found that out the hard way. Yeah, well, they yeah. expose themselves a little too much. But yeah, I talk about things that strike me funny that everybody laughs at. I don't like anything divisive. These days, first of all, you have to be so careful what you say. You say anything at all. There are people sitting home right now who are trying to figure out what to be offended by. Right. Oh, don't They cannot figure it out. They're, they're, they're going to stay up all night till they could figure out what to be offended by. But so terrible. W- when you're performing, Democrats, Republicans, non-political, anybody can enjoy your show. I perform tonight, everybody. And I talk about, I say, well, the, there's a very diverse audience, but we're all the same. You know, we, we share similar traits in common. One of the things we share in common is that we tend to exaggerate. Think about how many times have you gotten that call from a friend who tells you he was almost killed, but he wasn't even hurt, right? (laughs) Almost killed. He has the nerve to say he was almost killed, doesn't have a scratch on him. And they all have some weird story, and it all ends the same way. And one more inch, and I would have been killed. And I'm like, what are you exaggerating? If you're going to tell people you're almost killed, at least have the decency to be severely injured. That's That's right. That's right. (laughs) Or else it diminishes the severity of the story, right? So I talk about things like that. Things that people can relate to that strike me funny. I talk about ripped jeans. 
Ripped jeans are just torn pants, Frank. Right. That's I, I've all. seen that. But yeah. torn pants doesn't sound cool. You know, it's so funny. My yeah. wife has, a, I think, a couple of pairs of these of these torn dungarees, Rip, right? Ripped jeans. And the yeah. knees are, are torn, That's and right. it's intentional, right? But what's the message? Well, but So I will sometimes, when she's wearing them, I'll poke at the hole, <laughs> at the hole right. and she'll yell at me. She says, you're going to rip them. I said, <laughs> they're, they're already ripped. They're already ripped. If anything, I'm going to improve upon them. Exactly. I'll, I'll rip them more. They think of how much they'll go for if they're ripped more. And the more ripped they are, the more expensive <laughs> they are. It's amazing. I, I saw a girl last week just wearing pockets, Frank. <laughs> That's all that was left. Both legs were completely gone, just pocket a thousand dollars a thousand dollars right jeffrey i do have to ask you on uh, a very on a sad note one of the most iconic uh, sitcoms in history is uh, is three's company and an integral part of that show particularly early on was uh, was suzanne, suzanne summers, summers uh, yeah, today her, would have been her birthday unfortunately she passed away yesterday at the age of 76 77. Due, uh, due to uh, breast cancer did you know suzanne summers at all no, but I read her story. They said she had been fighting it for 23 years. Mm. And she always talked about how often she had sex with her husband. Right. Several times a day. I just read a couple of weeks ago. I don't know. I Maybe that's what happened to her. I don't know. <laughs> but I wouldn't make jokes about something as serious as someone passing away. But I just found it odd. That was their main thing. They always wrote about how often they got together. And he wrote a beautiful poem about her just yesterday. Yeah, they seem very much yeah. in love. And yes. uh, you know a lot of Hollywood couples, probably a lot more than I do. And the entertainment-based couples, they don't necessarily tend to be long-lasting long in the lasting. relationship It's very department. rare. You know why ego is a very strange thing? Uh, fame is a heavy drug. I've known many big stars, and I won't mention any names, but a, lo a lot of them are just insane. I think it's hard to handle fame when people give you everything that you want. Nobody says no to you, and you know that you're just a regular human being. Well, so, again, not mentioning any names, when you talk about a lot of these folks that are just insane, do you think that insane people go into performing and show business, or does performing and show business make you insane? I think it's the second. The I think second. they have to have a little bit of it before. But when people cater to you all the time and they're at your whim, it's a very strange thing. I, I've experienced it to a tiny, tiny degree because I'm not on that level at all. But when people want to do whatever it is that you want, nobody says no to you. And you know in your own mind that you're just a regular person. And people, you know, in this country, we don't have royalty. Our show business people are our royalty. Mm -hmm. And they get treated that way. And I've seen it. I mean, just some people just act very, very strange. It, it's, that's uh, that's it for sure. It doesn't fall within the quote of uh, normalcy. I mentioned uh, my trip to Long Island this weekend. You mentioned that you had just performed uh, tonight or a few hours ago. Yeah. Um, you are doing something in Long Island on Saturday. It's coming up this coming Saturday. Yeah, what are you doing? Well, in uh, Sag Harbor. They're calling it the Ha Ha Comedy Festival. Sounds funny already. A fellow named Paul Anthony who who produces a lot of festivals is doing this special festival and i'm i guess i could say it i'm the surprise guest oh well should you really be outing yourself uh, <laughs> I six guess. days before well, no i told him i was coming on and i was okay. going to talk about it it's at the sag uh, it's in sag harbor at the bay street theater and it holds about 400 people and uh, it's going to be amazing i was there for another event recently it's a beautiful theater sag harbor is a beautiful little town 
I've been to Sag and, Harbor. I've not been to this theater. I'm told it's great, though. So it's at the Bay Street Theater uh, this coming Saturday. If people want to get tickets, they can go to baystreet.org. Simple as that. Right. Baystreet.org this coming Saturday in Sag Harbor. That should be a lot of fun. Uh, October 21st, 8 o'clock show. Come say hi. As a matter of fact, the last show that we did where we gave away tickets in Southampton, if you remember, I was, sure, the, I was at the opening act on uh, for Sticks and Stones – the club. The, some of the listeners from your show came, and we had a great time Wonderful. together. They great. came over to say hi, and we had a lot of laughs, and it was great. Wonderful. If you are a listener and you see Jeffrey on Saturday, don't heckle. We don't want any of our no, listeners never, responsible no. for heckling. <laughs> but come say hi after the show. <laughs> now, Jeffrey, you're yeah. obviously Jewish, right? Yes. And, yeah, uh, yeah. A lot, obviously. <laughs> a lot of Jewish oh, – no, only because you've yeah. talked about it before. Yeah. A lot of Jewish uh, comedic personalities – have involved Judaism in their performance. My, my favorite and the one that most immediately comes to mind is Mel Brooks, but also people like Woody Allen and many other. Uh, going back to the, the the heyday of the Borscht Belt, going back to the forties, the fifties, they make Judaism central to their identity. And uh, Jackie Mason, I think that was his, the, the ultimate, of the his ultimate, act. right? Yeah, um, he and, was a good friend of mine. And yeah. a lot of folks, a lot of Gentiles, wonder. The the proper line between um, laughing at someone, laughing with someone versus laughing at someone that is not necessarily your persuasion, you know, whether it's Jewish or whether you took a black, white, if it's a Chris Rock situation. I wanted to run this by you because I'm a big fan of the TV show Seinfeld. I know you probably know Jerry. Yeah, sure, I know but Jerry did you for like, many years did you, before you, he was famous. You, yeah. I'm sure. But did you like the show itself? Yeah, too? sure. It was very clever, of course. So, because I know some comics, they weren't as crazy about it because they feel like they lived it, kind of. And it, it didn't necessarily strike them this with the same sort of humor that it did me. But I wanted to ask you about this. Because I was at a bris last weekend, and I just happened to read this uh, article in – I don't remember where I came across it. But there's a wonderful episode of Seinfeld. I thought it was wonderful. I thought it was very funny. And it has to do with a bris and the moyle. Here's a little bit of the moyle who had a lot of scenes in this particular episode giving Elaine a bit of a lecture on where she puts a glass on a table. Yeah. <laughs> Darling, you see where that glass is? You see how that glass is near the edge of the table? You've got the whole table there to put the glass. Why you chose the absolute edge. So half the glass is hanging off the table. You breathe and that glass falls over. And then you got broken glass on the carpet. Embedded in the carpet fibers, deep, deep in the shag. Broken glass, bits of broken glass. You can never get up. You can't get it up with a vacuum cleaner. Even on your hands and knees with a magnifying glass, you'll never get all the pieces. And then you think you got it all. And then one day, two years later, you're walking barefoot, you step on a piece of broken glass and you kill yourself. Is that what you want? I don't think that's what you want, is it? Do you, huh? recommended so meaning the moil <laughs> the moil that, right. that episode that's a tough job by the <laughs> way <laughs> yeah um that episode which is called the bris it aired 30 years ago yesterday so a uh-huh. lot of folks are looking back at it and one of the things that i had no idea about and i consider myself a little bit of a a seinfeldian scholar not a talmudic scholar but a seinfeldian scholar is that apparently jason alexander who is jewish 
had a big problem with that episode. Here's an interview that he did about 10 years ago on the 20th anniversary of that episode discussing some of his issues. And I want you to kind of make a ruling as a comic and as someone who's Jewish what your view is of the appropriateness of the Moyle in that episode. The other episode was um, an episode called The Briss. The version of it that came to the table the character of the Moyle was disgusting. Um, I think it remains disgusting in the show that we did, but it was, you got to go a long way to hit my Jew button. I give you Jews are funny and you can be really sacrilegious with me and I'll take every Jew joke you got, even the borderline offensive ones. To a non-Jew, the whole practice of the circumcision, the bris, is mysterious and kind of distasteful. And to present the figure of the moil, the person who goes, I'm going to be the guy. My life's work is going to be to remove the foreskin from the genitals of young Jewish boys. That's what I devote my life to, is already a person of questionable character to the non-Jew. And to make one who is a child-hating, self-loathing, foul-mouthed, incompetent, to me was um, anti-Semitic in a hurtful way. And I went to Larry and I went, I won't be in this episode. This one you have to take me out of. I, I have to boycott this. And I said, you, you, listen, I, I, exactly what I said to you. I'm, I'm up for every Jew joke you've got. This is, this is an offense. And he didn't see it at first. And then he said, I'm, I'm going to soften it. I'm going to soften it. And I went, okay. And I still think it was, um, I, I'm not proud of that episode at all. I'm not proud of that portrayal. Um, and I don't think it was a particularly good element in an otherwise pretty good episode. But those are the only two. I got to tell you, I was absolutely shocked to hear his criticism of that. Now, when he explains it, it makes perfect sense. But what do you think as a comic, as a guy that's done some writing, as someone who's Jewish? What do you make of that portrayal of the Moyle as sort of this neurotic uh, guy that is sort of incompetent? And what do you make of what Jason Alexander said there? He explained it really well. I have a feeling that it had more to do with watching the episode. Hearing it is different. Mm hmm. I think that that more went on on the set because the way he described him, you know, stereotypes. I like first of all, I hate stereotypes. I I love breaking down stereotypes. I hate when people think they can look at you and know all about you just by looking at you. Uh, when he said that he that he can take any kind of Jewish joke, I believe him, and I have a feeling that there was something about the way that character was portrayed that was over the top. So. I can understand being defensive. What you said, you know, years ago, all comedians were Jewish. Right. Even if you weren't Jewish, if you were a comic, you were like part of the tribe. You know, you know, I used to hear it's a very interesting thing. I I used to hear from a lot of Italians that did not like the Sopranos. They found that was stereotypical and uh, reinforced a lot of negative stereotypes, namely the Italian gangster kind of thing. But one of the things that people that were affiliated with the show mentioned, and I've asked them all about this, one of the things they all mentioned is that everyone that made the show, all the actors, a lot of the writers, a lot of the production people, they were all Italian. 
Does it change your perception or should it change anyone's perception that the people that wrote that episode were Jewish, Larry David and Jerry Exactly. Seinfeld. I was going to say that, too. And as far as the Italian thing, I don't know if you know, there was a, a very famous play called Six Goombas and a Wannabe. Yes, yes. I, I was the I wannabe. Right. Did you, do you know Vince Gagliarmella? I know who he is. I you don't know, know him He was Vincent yes. Gardinia's nephew, mm-hmm. the very famous Italian actor. And uh, before it went to Broadway, I was the wannabe because all my friends were Italian. There's nobody closer than Italians and Jews. That's right. Oh, you that's for that. sure. You know, you know absolutely. that. And, yeah. I mean, we have so much similarities of the things we like and the way we treat our families and our children and all, you know. Um, there's a segment of every population that's true. Not all stereotypes are completely wrong. There is some truth in all stereotypes. You know, I was friends with the whole cast of The Sopranos. Mm-hmm. It was a wonderful show. I loved the show. So did I. And, 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 you know, you interview people like that right. on, on your show all Absolutely. the time. How you do that is amazing to me, by <laughs> well, the way. <laughs> I, I appreciate that. Uh, Jeffrey Gurian yeah. is here. You could see him on Saturday at the Ha Ha Festival. He is the surprise guest. Don't tell anyone. Shh. If, you, that if you're going, don't tell anyone he's going to be there. But you can get tickets at BayStreet.org. It's BayStreet.org. If you have questions about anything we're talking about, uh, we've got a lot more to get to. Uh, 800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222. This is The Other Side of Midnight. Straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. This is The Other Side of Midnight, comedy writer, stand-up comic, host, author, producer, director, former dentist, and evidently this is his theme song. Jeffrey, why is this your theme song, Jump Around? You know, it started years ago when I was on Sirius XM because I jump around. I go to every comedy Uh club because, you know, not only do I do the things that you mentioned, but I'm a comedy journalist and I write about what's going on in the comedy scene. So in order to do that, I go to every club, like just about every night. And I jump around. And so Ron Bennington, you know, 
picked up on it and they started playing that. I and that love became it. my I theme love song. It. That's outstanding. And he'd say, when you hear that song, you know Jeffrey Gurian's in the house. Uh, <laughs> indeed, and the, that's our cue. Hey, uh, you caught a uh, special screening about Ernie Kovacs recently. Now, I didn't realize, because I, I never really saw Ernie Kovacs perform uh, until after he was already gone. I did not realize that he passed away in 1962. And I think it's a says, car accident. Uh, yeah, it says a lot about his work that it's lived on for 60 plus years since then. For people that have been born since 1962, who's Ernie Kovacs? He's, uh, he was the precursor to Eric Andre. Your young audience will know how crazy mm-hmm. Eric Andre is. The, is. He's got the craziest show on TV. Ernie Kovacs was doing that 50 years ago. Unbelievable what he did. And his wife was Edie Adams. Now, I get interesting contacts on social media because I'm out there. I'm all over social media. Ernie Kovacs was married to Edie Adams. Edie Adams had a son, Josh Mills, and he wrote to me and he invited me to this Ernie Kovacs thing. He never, I had never met him. But he said he knew of me and he wanted to invite me because he thought I would enjoy it. And I went last night. And who is the moderator? Alan Zweibel. Oh, really? You know, Alan Zweibel. Of course I do. So Alan Zweibel gave Weibel. me my start in comedy when he was up at Saturday Night Live. I brought my earliest films up there and Alan saw them. And I had, uh, they were very crazy films. I don't know if I ever told you about them. Like several men were arrested for smearing cream cheese on the ankles of elderly women who wore their stockings rolled down like bagels. You ever see the old women with the stockings yes. around yes, their ankles? It looked like bagels to me. So I got my dear grandmother, who had such a great sense of humor. She made believe she had a Jewish accent. And she said, you know, in the Jewish religion, we have two kinds of stockings, one for milk and one for meat. She goes, and this crazy man, he smeared cream cheese on my meat stockings, and I can't get it off. And I zoomed in with my Super 8 camera on her ankles. I brought it to Saturday Night Live. Alan Zweibel said to this day, he can't get that image out of his mind. I love it. I <laughs> love it. She's on the ankles. So we went last night, and uh, it was a fantastic, it was a documentary about, er, uh, about Ernie Kovacs, who did the craziest things 50 years ago. Very special effects. Nobody was doing that in television in those days. They were amazed at the things that he could do. And then he would have stuff like the Nairobi Trio, three men in gorilla suits, who would play music like on a xylophone. He just had a lot of very wild stuff. And I was a little kid and I loved it. A lot of times, even if the subject is great, a lot of times the documentary can just be okay. But this was a documentary that was worth seeing. They compiled a lot of his special. It wasn't like a straight documentary. They compiled some of his best stuff from all of his shows. Can, can regular people see it, or you got to be invited to a VIP screening? Like I don't you? know if they should. It was at the Anthology Film Archives huh. on 2nd and 2nd. But there's a book. Uh, Josh Mills wrote a book about it. And this girl that I was with bought me a copy. Isn't that nice? That is nice. Most girls don't do that. That is nice. It was very nice. But if people get the opportunity to see it, they should. And you know what kind of car Ernie Kovacs was driving when he got into that car accident. I did yesterday, but I forgot. He He, crashed it into a tree. What kind of car was it? A regular guest of ours would be the first one to remind you. That's Ralph Nader, Chevy Corvair. Oh, really? Unsafe at any speed. Unsafe Mm. at any speed. It was for him, for sure. That is for sure. All right, 800-848-9222. But Ernie Kovacs, the interesting thing about him is they say 
he really inspired the next six decades of comedy. Well, like Steve that Allen, Conan O'Brien was doing. You know, uh, no, but even, even way before Steve Allen used to do a lot of crazy stuff too. If you remember, oh Steve no Allen. doubt, no doubt, no doubt. Wasn't Ernie Kovacs also briefly the host of the Tonight Show when I had they had a bunch of these rotating hosts after Steve Allen yes, left? Yes, I believe that he was. Yeah, yeah. And, and and he and he had a, well, he had his own show for for right. several seasons. Right. Yeah. But, uh, yes, he was a host on The Tonight Show as well. All right. Joe in Queens has a question for you. Uh, you're on with uh, Jeffrey yeah, Gurian, Joe. I have Joe. a question. Yeah. A two-part question. One is, do you draw, like, say, when you're starting out writing comedy, do you think in terms of broad or general categories or you try and pick up something specific? And uh, did you think The Three Stooges was really – that didn't totally resonate with me, that type of humor. Well, uh, it was silly. You... It was silly for its day. I liked some of them. you know. And, and it's funny that you mentioned them because there was an article that just came out yesterday about the tragic lives that they led, mm-hmm. The Three Stooges. I did see that, actually. Yeah, and I tried to read it, but it said I had ad blockers, and it wouldn't show me the whole <laughs> article. The but I started reading it. And and it just happened to be about the, the three Stooges. There were four of them, though. You know, well, um, Shemp, right? Shemp, yeah, yeah Shemp. But in, in terms of your question about whether I look for general things, it depends on who I'm writing for. If I'm writing for myself, I just write about things that strike me funny. Like I said, ripped jeans. Everybody sees them. To me, they look like torn pants. Mm-hmm. So I would write about something like that, you know? Um but if, a, if like when I wrote for Joan Rivers, she asked me to write about dating older men. When you're writing for a very experienced comedian, they know what they want to talk about. Mm-hmm. So they'll give you a category and they'll say, write jokes about this. And I wrote her this joke once. I said, I, she, she was, I was dating this guy who was so old, the only thing firm about him was his cane. That was it. <laughs> <laughs> that was it. So, you know, I love writing one-liners. One-liners was the best. When I wrote for Rodney Dangerfield, that was so fun because his whole thing was one-liner. You know, and thanks for the call, Joe. Those types of jokes where, you know, uh, you talk about I was dating someone so old and then everyone says, how old were they? Or, you know, (laughs) like Johnny Carson. What do you call that family of jokes? Everyone knows what a knock knock joke is. Everyone knows what a Polish joke is. But you call them one liners. They're not. They're kind of degree of severity jokes. He was so old and then you could keep going forever. Well, nobody does that on stage. Right. Johnny Carson used to do that on the Tonight Show. How old was he? How fat was he? Right, right, right. You can't even do that anymore yeah, you'd be no, accused no. of fat shaming but, th- but that doesn't yeah. have a family of uh, you know a a category of jokes that those types of jokes not that i know of i would refer it to was them so as, hot you know and then well, everybody shuts you know there are jokes they call bar jokes two guys walk into a bar right. and they say well, who wrote those like they the, used to say prisoners wrote those jokes right but so and i never heard anybody give it a name yeah there are polish jokes there are bar jokes there's knock knock jokes yeah. i never i always and i've looked i've never heard a category of joke for uh, the type it's probably uh, that how I'm fat was she joke that's the, that's the kind of, that's the kind of category you could create for that hey you're starring in a uh, a new short film uh, we, you know that has apparently a kind of a Woody Allenish uh, type feel to it what's this film what's the big deal about this yeah it's another interesting thing that i get i get a message this girl noel leon so she's based in la she's an influencer She's got just about a million views, a million followers on Instagram. She's on all the social media. She's a stand-up comedian. 
And she wrote to me and she goes, I'm coming to New York. Would you be interested in being in a film I'm doing? And her last film got millions and millions of views. So I said, of course. So, and she knew about my fascination with Woody Allen. There's a lot about me online. So people must read about it. Like this guy who contacted me tonight, he's got 7 million subscribers on YouTube and he wants to do stand-up comedy. I'm like, absolutely. And when you come to New York, let me know. So she came to New York and she showed me this script and we started filming it in Central Park, a very Woody Allen-ish kind of thing. And it was Woody that read my earliest material. He was my inspiration in comedy when he used to do stand-up on The Tonight Show. I mean, with Ed Sullivan. He did a joke I'll never forget. He said, I was walking down the street and a maniac threw a Bible out of a window. And if I hadn't had a bullet in my breast pocket... The Bible would have pierced my heart. (laughs) (laughs) The bullet saved his life. I remember that joke since I'm a kid. Woody was was my inspiration and my idol, and I got to meet him, and it's a long story, but he read all my earliest material and told me it was very visual. So when she contacted me, I said, yes, I definitely want to do this. It's a story about a very unlikely friendship. This young, beautiful girl and I walk in the park every day, and we just keep seeing each other, but we never speak. And then something magical happens. I don't want to give it away, but uh, something magical happens. Can people see this? Well, no, we're we're, we're shooting it right now. now. Okay, all right, so you'll have to come back. We'll be filming next week uh, when she comes back from L.A. She just left yesterday, and she'll be back, and we're going to do more All right, well, you got to keep us posted on that. That sounds sounds pretty interesting. It's really nice. And then at the end of November... I'm the official interviewer at the Vermont Comedy Festival. I'll be performing there too. I'll be doing a special do presentation. Syrup jokes up there <laughs> yeah. in Vermont. Yeah, I've never been to Vermont. You ever been up there? No, no. I've it's supposed to, go to be beautiful. beautiful. I've heard nothing but good things. Um, you know, Joe mentioned your process, right? Of 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 writing and crafting your act when you perform, like like you just did a couple of hours ago. How much, if uh, people come see you, and let us behind the curtain a little bit, how much is your regular routine, and then how much changes from performance to performance? That's an interesting question. First, I don't do crowd work. I don't do, where are you from, sir? Uh I I don't care where people are from. (laughs) I want them to laugh. To me, that's not particularly funny, playing off the audience. Some people do it. If you're the host of a show... People start out doing that to get the audience involved, to warm people up. Right, I get that. I think I've done that. I yeah. just warm. I just warn the audience. I say, this is the most dangerous part of the show. This is the part of the show where I try to tell jokes to people who are not drunk yet. <laughs> That's what I do. I warn them first, you know? But I don't really do crowd work. So I can change. It depends on how many minutes I get also. If I get a 15-minute spot, I know that there is more things that I can do. I bring a set list with me. Most comedians, are you familiar with the concept of a set list? I, I mean, I don't think uh, so. Well, I have one in my wallet. If I grab it, I'll show it to you. It's, a, it's an index card, and you write down the topics that you're gotcha, going to discuss. Gotcha. And then you have to alter it once you're on stage because when you get the red light, Sometimes you only have two minutes. Well, I mean, I do that every every day for four hours. I have a certain <laughs> amount of things that I want to get to, right. and then you get to it, you don't get to it. Right, and then the you talk- have to, and, and so what you do, look, you're improv, we're improv. Mm-hmm. It's one of the hardest things in the world. When I'm on the red carpet and I'm doing interviews with celebrities, you're improv There's no way to prepare. I just posted one on my Instagram with Jim Carrey that people are loving because we had such an intimate conversation within just a few minutes because when it's a big celebrity like that, their publicists are pulling them away because everybody wants to talk to them. Mm-hmm. 
and you have to be saying something really interesting to get their attention. And he was riveted. We just had this amazing conversation, very existential. So where can people see that? ComedyMatters.tv? ComedyMattersTV.com, but also on my Instagram, which is at Jeffrey Gurian, J-E-F-F-R-E-Y. You know how many people misspell Jeffrey these days? J-E-F-F-R-E-Y-G-U-R-I-A-N, as in Nancy, on Instagram. Well, good for you for taking it back. I respect that. Hey, uh, Jeffrey, we're uh, broadcasting today on uh, KMOX in St. Louis, one of the biggest radio stations in America. You know anything about St. Louis? Know any St. Louis jokes? I wish I did. I don't know any St. Louis. (laughs) Do you know any St. Louis? I don't. Who knows St. Louis jokes? I don't. The only thing uh, funny about St. Louis is the way they slice their bagels. They bread slice them. They slice them vertically. Yeah, I was shocked. It's a real thing, apparently. <laughs> it's really wild. 800-848-9222. Mark is uh, listening on WCBM in Baltimore. Hello, Mark. Hey, I got, I got three questions. Uh, the first one, I want to know about money jokes. You know, what is your funniest thing about money? Um, and then your best jokes, do they just snap like in a second where you think about it and you've got them? What do, what do you think, uh, Jeffrey? I, I know that guy. He's a bit I, of a joker himself. Yeah, I, don't yeah. I don't have any money jokes. <laughs> it's interesting that people think that you would have jokes on every category that they could mention. I don't, there's nothing funny really about money. But I didn't get the second question. Do yeah, you remember what he asked? No, he's, he's, no. he's kind of a clown. I, okay. I know that fella. Um, okay. all right, we're going to continue with Jeffrey Gurian in a moment. And um, fortunately for you, Jeffrey is the author of a lot of great books, including Man Robs Bank with His Chin. And there's a lot of stories that are big stories, important stories in the news, but they didn't exactly make the front pages. Jeffrey has compiled a bunch of them, and he's going to bring one or two to our attention in just a minute, and we'll try and squeeze in some more of your questions as well. 800-848-9222, straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight. Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. Other side of midnight. I'm Frank Morano. We have our happiness doctor and our happiness expert in studio. He is actually a doctor of the dentistry variety, but uh, for the last few decades, he has done his utmost to make people smile, not by improving their smiles, but by improving their sense of humor. The one and only Jeffrey Gurian. Jeffrey Gurian has written many books and uh, 
has done a lot of other interesting things, but you really should check him out at ComedyMattersTV.com. It's a window into all things Jeffrey Gurian. You can see some of the great interviews that he's done. There are links to uh, a lot of other videos on there, a l- little bit about his biography. It's a, And you can get in contact with Jeffrey if you want to bring anything to his attention. It's ComedyMattersTV.com. Jeffrey, before we get to very interesting stories from Man Rob's Bank with his chin. A couple of people very eager to chat with you based on what we've said so far. Let me say hello first to Charles in Queens. Hello, Charles. Hi. Good morning, Frank. Good morning, Jeffrey. Good morning. I want to compliment Jeffrey. Uh, I like your sense of humor. You sound very funny. Thank you very much. Um, You're very welcome. You were talking about Jews and Italians. I happen to be Orthodox Jewish. And I was once, this funny story, I met an Italian, I was, in, I was about 22, 23 in a hotel for Passover, a kosher hotel. And I became friendly with the waiter who was Italian. So we became friends, we were about the same age, and then I was telling him some jokes about with the Jew was the butt of the joke. Then I figured I'll take the liberty of telling him an Italian joke. And I said to him, what's the difference between a Jewish actuary and an Italian actuary. He says, I don't know what. I said, the Jewish actuary tells you how many people are going to die next year. The Italian actuary tells you who. (laughs) His eyes were burning. First I said about three or four jokes at my expense, Jewish expense. He wanted to kill me. Those days, that's about 50 years ago or so, and those days, Italians were very sensitive about Every every Italian is a mafioso. I I think it's less so now. Am I right? I don't think it's that sensitive anymore. Maybe they are, but Sopranos, I don't know. I don't know, but I have a question for you. Do you know my rabbi, Shmari Garari? That's Lubavitch, isn't it? He's a Chabad rabbi in Brooklyn, and everybody seems to know him. Yeah, everybody seems to know him. All those guys that stop you in the street and ask you if you're Jewish, they want to put Svillin on. I always ask them, and they all know yeah, Shmari Garari. If, if you say you're not Jewish, they'll say, do you know anybody in the neighborhood that's Jewish? Yeah, right. uh, <laughs> yeah, they, right. they do great work. Charles, very, I graduated uh, the Chabad Yeshiva. They're very uh, very dedicated and very sincere, and very, they love every very single brave. Jew. They love non-Jews, too. But they're very, uh, really, very kind and wonderful people. Very, Charles, very uh, thank you. Appreciate it. All right. Jeffrey, for people who have not heard our previous discussions— what is this book, Man Robs Bank with His Chin? Well, I'll tell you. <laughs> see, I'm fascinated by stories that are missed by mainstream media. Same. And nobody knows if people are telling the truth on right. the news. I like uplifting stories. So one of the stories, so it's called Man Robs Bank with His Chin and other unusual stories missed by mainstream media with blurbs from Richard Lewis from Curb Your Enthusiasm. He wrote these hilarious stories and the author's longtime reputation as a top comedian makes you wonder why he isn't selling out clubs in North Korea. <laughs> he's talking and about you. He's talking yeah, about me. Gotcha. And so this story is that George Washington wore wooden pants. Now, a lot of people think that George Washington had wooden teeth. Sure, that's why I heard Not that. true at all. Not true. As a child, he was very poor. His father made his diapers out of bark. You're kidding. No, and the Smithsonian Institute actually has a pair of George Washington's wooden pants. Do you remember... The Amazing. famous painting when he's crossing the Delaware. Right, sure. Well, that's why he's standing up in the boat. <laughs> you can't sit down in wooden pants. I always wondered about that. That's now, the reason. Now you know the rest of the story. Now, now it makes perfect know. sense. And, and then there's uh, Man Grows Turtle Shell. 
He it started with a small bump on his back. Like a lot of guys, they don't want to go to sure, the doctor. I'm the same way. They don't like to go to the doctor forever. His wife is telling him that bump is getting bigger. It turned into a fully grown turtle shell. My now, goodness. And on a so, human? On a human. So his wife says it's hard to sleep with the guy because he sleeps on his back because of the shell and his legs go in the air like while he's sleeping. <laughs> she says he's always been shy, but now she really has to coax him out of his shell. <laughs> no, but for somebody like that, is there anything that can be done surgically for him? When it when the shell was smaller, but now it's fully and it, it, it covers his whole body. Oh. So he said, you know, he, he said the main problem is his suits don't fit right because most designers don't make a jacket to fit over a shell. I, I, I can understand that. I can understand that. That's that's rough. And then there's High Roller wears mustache out of gold. Laszlo Chips Matouche is his name. Came into this casino wearing a solid gold mustache. I heard place. about this guy. This was in Atlantic City. Yeah, in yeah, Atlantic yeah. City. And the glare from his mustache damaged people's eyesight. I, That's how highly polished it was. See, uh, that guy is a menace. He's got to do a something menace. about that exactly. mustache. So hey. people who like these stories, you could find it in Man Rob's Bank with His Chin. It's on Amazon. If you like interesting, bizarre stories, you'll have enough of them in this book. All right. Search Gurian, G-U-R-I-A-N. Jeffrey with a J, not a G. Uh, Jeffrey Gurian. Marie is in Flanders. Hello, Marie. Hi, everybody. Jeffrey, we're going to come see you now at Sag Harbor, my husband and I. Oh, that's so wonderful. That's so great. And I I know Flanders. I've been to Flanders. I know. And, And you tried to ask us if you could go to this house for a little while during the intermission, we honestly said, you can't do it, you won't make it. But real quick, two quick things for you, Frank, and for Mr. Jeffrey. Um, the Book and Candle, excellent movie. I've seen it 50 times at least. Wait, what, what, what film? It's a very old Bell, movie, Bell, Book, and oh, Candle. Oh, Bell, Book, and Candle. Got it, I've, I've heard of it. At least 50 times, at least 50 times. But today's my husband's 67th birthday, Gordon. Happy and birthday. It's also, and it's also Suzanne Summers. Yeah, I, I mentioned that. Uh, that is sad. I know you did. Yeah, happy birthday to uh, to your husband. Uh, I hope you guys are doing something fun today. Yeah, we're going to go out to lunch after I, I work now at the school with the kids. All right, I well, it. it sounds sounds it. like a plan to me. Thank you, Marie. But one quick one quick joke, and I'm going to go. One okay. quick joke, right. it's quick. And my husband invented this joke or wrote it. When somebody tells you, try this, guys, you got to really try this. Somebody tells you their knee hurts, you be sympathetic. You say, oh, I'm sorry to hear that. But is it your left knee or your high knee? <laughs> well, I, you know, I can promise you this, Marie. I don't think um, you, that joke is in danger of being stolen by your husband. I, I think he's going to be just fine with the ownership of that joke. Marie, thank you. Happy birthday to your husband. Hopefully he can wish for better writers. Uh, Jeffrey Gurian, it is always a treat to have you. Thank you. <laughs> it's my treat to be here with you, Frank. Thanks so much for having me on. It's uh, pe- always a blast. People can learn more about Jeffrey at uh, ComedyMattersTV.com. You can also check out all of his books on Amazon, including Man Rob's Bank with His Chin. Next hour, we're going to get into some more serious pursuits, including the foreign policy scene with Dan Kavalik. Help control the pet population. Get your dog or cat spayed or neutered. This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Now, here's Frank Morano.
They call people that look to the future uh, futurists or visionaries or seers, if you're predicting the future. They call the people who look towards the past nostalgic. What do you call the people that just want to preserve the status quo? Status quotists? And I'm struck by that when I look at what's happening in the world of entertainment. I don't know if you saw the video that I posted a few hours ago on Facebook, but I held the four Netflix envelopes, the last four Netflix envelopes that I will ever have, because Netflix has ended its DVD by mail service. I won't belabor the point of everything I've already said about that. But now it turns out this was not a one off. This was a domino. A DVD slash Blu-ray domino that is calling all causing all these other dominoes to fail. Netfall. Now, Best Buy says that streaming has made DVDs obsolete and it can use physical space in its stores and warehouses for tech products in higher demands. They are doing away with DVDs. The company has shrunk down aisles of DVDs in recent years. You know, I've noticed that because a lot of times I will be I'll go into a Best Buy to look for a DVD or a Blu-ray and inevitably they never have what I'm looking for. And I leave. But you know why I still like going in there? The smell. There's something about the smell of that DVD aisle. You could close your eyes and you know exactly where you are. You give a big sniff. Ah, yes. Okay, there's uh, 20 copies of uh, a movie that I've never wanted to see. And, of course, they don't have the movie that I do want to see. But Best Buy's exit from the DVD marketplace leaves Walmart, Amazon, and Target as the top retailers still rocking DVDs. That's according to Digital Bits. Walmart reportedly controls 45% of the market for DVDs. I have to be honest. I had no idea that was the case. I think this is such a shame. This is another nail in the coffin for those of us that like to watch DVDs and enjoy them. To me, I, I know you can watch a lot of these films on streaming, and in some ways maybe it's more convenient. They're not taking up space in your house. To me, there's something so special about having a shelf. With all your movies on the shelf, maybe it's organized alphabetically. Maybe it's organized by category. Maybe it's organized by color of the jewel case. Maybe it's organized by uh, what your favorite films are. But there's something so much fun. I love going into someone's house and looking at their bookshelf. And I used to have the same feeling going into someone's house and looking at their movie case looking at their VHS tapes and then later on their DVDs and be able to ask them questions. Oh, my goodness. You saw Beyond the Poseidon Adventure? How was it? Was it as bad as everybody thinks? Tell me about it. And then they'll say, well, I actually haven't gotten around to seeing that one yet, or I did see it. it it's, it's such a great conversation starter, and I think it's terrible that DVDs are going the way of the telegraph machine. And I hope Best Buy reconsiders this. Now, I understand brick and mortar is in a tough 
position. They are being really run out of town by people doing online shopping, people doing all their shopping digitally. I get it. I get it. So I'm not going to question any business decisions they make, especially because fewer people are watching DVDs. But I hate that there's one less option now for people like me who enjoy watching DVDs and Blu-ray. I was totally Netflix dependent. And now that I don't have Netflix... There's really nowhere to get this kind of selection. Now, I, I, honestly, I, I viewed Best Buy selection as just terrible. And I didn't like to get DVDs from there anyway because they only have DVDs available for purchase. The great thing about Netflix is the selection was almost limitless. You could just think of any movie almost ever, put it in your queue, they'd send it to you, keep it as long as you want, and then send it back. I know uh, there are other services that do this. I know Redbox does this. I don't know. I've heard not great things about the Redbox selection either. But Best Buy, their DVD selection is no more. I think it's only a matter of time until Best Buy is no more, period. I think Best Buy is, I don't know. I think it's seen better days. And I think they're missing an opportunity. You know, sometimes you can put yourself out of business by trying to be too trendy, to try to say, oh, what's the next trend? Let's stay on top of this. Oh, what's the next wave? Let's try and be ahead of the next wave. Rather than do that, why not? See, Netflix abandoned a million of us. There were a million customers still using these DVDs. Rather than uh, kiss those people off, why not just, why shouldn't someone else step into the void and say, you know what, I'm Best Buy, I'm going to step in and I want to rescue those Netflix people that have been stranded. Instead, Netflix is saying, no, 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 don't come to me looking for a life preserver. Uh, I'll throw you to the sharks. So I guess the last place that you can go is Walmart. I'm sure they offer DVD sales online, but I don't have a Walmart by me. So I don't like this. I don't like this one bit. 800-848-9222 if you feel differently. 800-848-9222. Dan Kavalik is going to join me in uh, in about 10 minutes. Dan is an interesting guy because he's a very left-wing guy. But so many of the positions that he ends up advocating for align with the right wing. He's one of the most left wing people I know. And yet he wrote this book all about how they were trying to frame Donald Trump over the Russia hoax. And it's a bunch of things like that. So he's got a new book out about cancel culture. He's also got a new book out about Nicaragua. And uh, I think if I'm understanding this correctly, I think he was just in Russia. What's it like for an American to go to Russia now? And if time permits, we'll uh, get into the Middle East situation as well with him. 800-848-9222. Speaking of politics, i got to mention this. Quinn Mitchell is a 15-year-old political enthusiast who was kicked out, an event, out of an event put on by the New Hampshire State Republican Party that featured appearances by a number of Republican presidential hopefuls. Mitchell has met dozens of presidential candidates over the past four years, and he made headlines for a testy exchange with Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, after which Mitchell said he was physically intimidated by DeSantis' security. 
A month later, Mitchell found himself being escorted out of another GOP event by five police officers after filming videos of Republican Perry Johnson. Other than me, does anyone even know Perry Johnson's running for president? I feel, and other than you, because you listen to this show, why are they escorting him out of a Perry Johnson event? If you're Perry Johnson, I'd be, you should be thinking, what? He wants video of me? By all means, send him in. So according to what he told this young man, Quinn Mitchell, what he told the Boston Globe, they told me I was being a disruption. I was taking a video like anybody else. So he spoke to NBC Boston about his interaction with Ron DeSantis. That his whole speech was relitigating the past when it came to January 6th and COVID and life uh, in Florida three years ago. I mean, that was hypocritical. I said, look, man, I'm really sorry for getting you all that trouble. And, you know, there was a tug on my shirt. I shot him. I was like, Governor, do you have a different answer? And he's just like, you live in New Hampshire. Come to my next event. Uh, DeSantis uh, went to his next event, uh, his Newport Town Hall. And I kind of tried to approach him, but it was, again, like, blocked and then I later learned that you know they were taking snapchat photos of me with the caption you know got our kid i think i definitely try to pose a question but you know not not to the extent where it's you know seem pushy and just looking to get you know more clicks or something it's not not my goal so they threw him out of the uh perry johnson event but he was later sp- spotted back at the event an hour later And he uh, addressed this on X, formerly known as Twitter. He said, believe me, if I disrupted an event, my mom would never, ever take me to another one. Not my style. I think it's terrible that they give this kid such a hard time. I think it's great that he's interested in politics. I think it's great that uh, that he's trying to confront these candidates and ask them challenging questions. I I don't understand why everybody's being hostile. I'm, I'm with the kid on this one. The young man. 800-848-9222. Before we get to Dan Kavalik, Michael is in Manhattan. Hi, Michael. Okay. I have three quick things. Okay. One, in reference to the uh, DVDs, I would suggest that being a married man, you focus on your DVDs and not your DVDs. Oh, very good. Yeah, because you don't want her to sue you. For non-support, but um, bum. Yeah, that's, that's and, good. okay. Next one, a friend of mine who spent all his money on his family most of his life, seventy years old. He says, "You know what? I'm going to treat myself to dental implants." Okay, it cost him close to eighty thousand dollars. He had a thriving business in finance. And it related to interest rates. The interest rates changed rapidly. He got screwed. He lost his business. The dentist sued him for the $80,000 because his attorney said, you got to sue him, you know, just to show it on your books. So he sued him. And he said, I don't know what I'm going to do. So the judge said, look, you're going to work for that dentist to pay it off. He said, really? He said, yeah, you're going to become an indentured. Uh, thank you, Michael. Um, I'm not sure where Michael is appearing. Believe me, I would love to warn you uh, so that uh, you're not victimized the same way you've, so many of us just were. So be it. All right. 
800-848-9222. The DVD is not dead, but it is endangered. You know, uh, Ken Burns, I just read this interview they did with him in the Wall Street Journal. He's got this new documentary out about the mistreatment of the American buffalo. How about the fact, now I'm not comparing the plight of the DVD player owner, the Blu-ray disc player owner, to the American buffalo, not by a, a long shot. However, I will say that there should be someone other than me that cares about this. It seems like company after company is rushing to throw us under the bus. And I don't think that's right. The only one getting treated worse than us is this 15-year-old kid, Mr. Quinn Mitchell in New Hampshire. All right. uh, Dan Kavalik joins us in a moment. We're going to talk a little bit about what's happening around the world, including in Nicaragua. You know, you really haven't heard that much about Nicaragua lately. And sure enough, that's the focus of his new book. Well, we'll get into it straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer incentive set of offers. 15178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe and Summit 4xe models and dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark. It's the other side of midnight with Frank Morano. This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Morano. I have always really enjoyed speaking with Dan Kavalik. Dan Kavalik seems to have a specialty in writing books about nations that America considers her enemies. Uh, Venezuela, Iran, Russia. It's almost like you get the sense that he's the bad guy in wrestling or at least the manager that's uh, representing the bad guy in wrestling or the announcer that's rooting for the bad wrestler. It's a funny thing with Dan Kavalik, though. You read a lot of what's in these books and... He makes a great deal of sense. I'm not embarrassed to tell you. He has persuaded me to think about things quite differently after reading some of his books. And uh, he's up for debating anybody at any time on in any forum, left-wing shows, right-wing shows. He is a human rights and labor rights attorney, a peace activist. He teaches international human rights at the University of Pittsburgh School of Law. And he's the author of seven. Several books, including his most recent, Nicaragua, A History of U.S. Intervention and Resistance. Dan, it's been too long since we spoke. Welcome. Frank, it's so great to be back. I always enjoy it. Same here. Uh, I mentioned your most recent book, Nicaragua, A History of U.S. Intervention and Resistance. There's a lot of countries in the news these days 
For American audiences, I don't know that Nicaragua is necessarily one. Uh, obviously, Nicaragua was f- very much in the news during the Iran-Contra scandal. What do we need to know about Nicaragua in your view? Why would you write this book? Why focus on this right now with so many things happening in the world? Yeah, well, uh, while well, you're correct, it is not in the news much. Uh, it is a big focus of Congress, actually. Uh, the Senate has or the Senate, uh, I believe, Foreign Relations Committee has been debating um, more sanctions on Nicaragua. There's been several rounds of sanctions on Nicaragua since 2018. And now the Senate's considering more sanctions, sanctions that could really devastate the Nicaraguan economy. And so uh that's really what led me, amongst other things, to write this book. Now, those sanctions, the sanctions debate on that, it was slowed down by the a bit by the corruption scandal of Menendez, who's on that committee. And is he's the guy. Well, he's one of the senators really pushing for those sanctions. Uh, interesting. Menendez seems to be at the heart of uh, scandals involving a lot of the countries uh, that you're dealing with. So uh, it's, it's interesting. His name keeps popping up. Um, you, you talk about what Congress is doing. What is the status of Nicaragua these days? How's the nation doing? I mean, the truth is it's doing pretty well. It's being led by the Sandinistas, which, as you know, uh, led a revolution in 1979 against the U.S.-backed dictator, Anastasio Somoza. Somoza was a brutal dictator. He killed 50,000 Nicaraguans in the last year of his reign, mostly by aerial bombings. He bombed his own cities, uh, something a lot of people don't know, and again, mostly with U.S. munitions. Uh, the Sandinistas overthrew him, and they weren't in power very long before the U.S. began arming formal former national guardsmen uh the national guard of the dictator who had been flown by uh jimmy carter to honduras before he left office and then reagan picked them up started arming them as the contras and then there was another almost 10-year war against uh nicaragua to try to oust the sandinistas um and that you raised the Iran-Contra scandal. That's what that was about. That that uh, at some point, I believe around 1987, Congress actually cut aid off to the Contras because of their human rights abuses. Uh, they were, you know, basically terrorists. They ended up killing another 30,000 Nicaraguans in addition to the 50,000 Samosa killed. In any case, Congress cut off aid in 1987, and as you referred to, Reagan decided to keep funding them anyway, which, of course, was illegal. Um, and he did it two ways. One, by selling arms to Iran, uh, which was illegal because we had an arms embargo against Iran. He used that money to, to fund the countries. But he also did it, or the CIA did it, uh, by selling cocaine on the streets of the United States and using those funds for the Contras, which, of course, when some people hear that, they're going to think I'm completely insane to say that, that I'm a conspiracy theorist. But that's been verified mm-hmm. that that happened. Mm-hmm. 
And, and uh, that was part of the Iran-Contra scandal you mentioned. Um, in any case, uh, the Sandinistas ended up being voted out of power in 1990, largely because of the war. The Nicaraguans wanted it to end, and that was the only way it was going to end, if they voted the Sandinistas out, which they did. Um, but in 2006, so about 16 years later, the Nicaraguans voted the Sandinistas and Daniel Ortega back in power. And since that time, the country's been doing well. Almost every year, they've had 5% economic growth. Um, since that time, the government has built 26 world-class hospitals, uh, re- reinstituted free education and health care. And actually, a very curious statistic, um, for a few years running, Nicaragua's been uh, designated by a U.N. agency as either the fifth or seventh most um, gender-equal society in the world, which is incredible for a small third-world country. Um, the U.S. isn't even in the top ten. So actually, it's doing quite well. And so, but the U.S. has been really trying again to oust the Sandinistas um, through economic means. So they've imposed several rounds of sanctions, which haven't done a lot to hurt Nicaragua. And now that brings us to today. They're considering mm. another round, which this, the what they are considering, could really could really hurt the Nicaraguan economy. Uh, talking with uh, Dan Kavalik, his latest book is Nicaragua, A History of U.S. Intervention and Resistance. Dan, I don't think anybody, irrespective of where they fall on the political spectrum, would dispute that the United States has done a fair amount of intervening in other countries. Uh, just this past Thursday, the CIA officially came out and admitted that they participated in the uh, coup of the democratically elected government of Iran back in 1953. We see country after country where the United States has either overtly or covertly played a role in changing government or intervening in another country. How was the intervention in Nicaragua different from the intervention that the United States has engaged in in other places, or how was it the same? Well, the initial intervention, which put Somoza in power in 1934, that was done in a very direct way through the United States Marines. The Marines invaded in 1910 um, to protect various mining, U.S. mining interests there, and also to prevent um, Nicaragua from working with Japan to build a canal there. Um, and the Marines were there for uh, a few decades. Um, they ended up being ousted by a you know a, a revolutionary leader named Augusto C. Sandino. The Sandinistas were named after him. Um, but before they left, they had actually created the National Guard that I mentioned before, under the leadership of Somoza. And Somoza would go on to uh, assassinate Sandino. To declare himself president, he would be dictator again till he was ousted in 1979. So the initial creation of of the National Guard, which ruled um, 
Nicaragua in 1979 was through a direct military invasion, which is not as, as typical today that the U.S. does it. It does it through more covert means. Now, that would be used more in the 1980s with the Contras. Mm-hmm. Um, that's where the CIA came in and, and armed and trained them and directed them. That's a more typical way now that the U.S. tries to subvert uh, other countries through proxies like the Contras. Honestly, people might be surprised even through ISIS, which they did support. Um, they've supported ISIS on and off in countries like Syria to try to destabilize. Right. Uh, and, and that's an important the point. Government. The United States has actually supported, uh, the, you know, groups like ISIS in places like Syria. Yes. You know, and it was interesting, you know, when Trump was running for president in 2016, he said that he said right. that Obama had created ISIS. And there's some truth to that. Um he wasn't the only one involved in that, but and in fact, Seymour Hirsch was writing as far back as in 2007 that, you know, after the war and ta- terror began in 2001, which was focused on fighting Al Qaeda. At some point, the U.S.'s position towards groups like Al Qaeda shifted. And the U.S. began, again, funding groups like al-Qaeda and ISIS, again, to destabilize countries like Syria. You know, so that's been going on for quite a long time. Um, Yeah. And again, people were shocked when when Trump said that. But again, there is a lot of truth to that. Um, And that sort of relationship continues to that this day. In fact, there's a huge irony, and you might, I don't know, you might have even seen it on social media. When Netanyahu recently compared Hamas to ISIS, some people said, oh, are you going to arm them? <laughs> you know, because Israel also worked with them um, for the same reasons. So, yeah, we the, the idea of the U.S. working with these proxy forces mm. are, is not— New and again, well, I mean, we have to be honest. We have, you know, we have to go far back to the Mujahideen, right? That the U.S. was backing as far back as 1979. One of the leaders was Osama bin Laden, and yeah. he, of course, went on to form Al Qaeda. So a lot of times, these groups that we create and fund and support, they come back to attack us right it's it's like frankenstein's monster uh it, it's the oldest story and it's just such a shame that it keeps uh, repeating itself uh, with great tragedy dan kavalik is my guest uh, he's written a number of books dan one of the books that you wrote which i enjoyed very much was the plot to scapegoat russia and in a nutshell the premise of that book was essentially that uh, the Democrats and others were looking to make Russia the bad guy in the Trump Russiagate uh, campaign allegations of 2016. And they were trying to basically frame Russia for colluding with Trump wrongly. Is that the basic premise of it? 
That is correct. That was the reason I wrote that book. Yeah, I wrote it in 2017. And that's when Russiagate, it was shortly after the whole Russiagate allegations were ma- being made. And of course, they continue to this day, even though Biden's own Justice Department right. in the in, in the Durham report has has debunked those claims. Right? No, right? It's, I mean, I mean, every it's one of those things. That they, they I guess they call them zombie lies that never go away. And no matter how many times you you keep uh, getting something that uh, that debunks it, it just it keeps coming back. But the thing that was interesting to me is now we've been in the midst of this Russia Ukraine war uh, for about uh, about two years. And you actually visited Russia a few months ago, right in the midst of this Russia-Ukraine war, where the United States is firmly on the side of Team Ukraine. You actually visited Russia recently. Yes, I've been to Russia three times. Since the war? Since since that war began, or or that, I would say that phase of the war, because as, as I've written about, uh, the war really began in 2014. Um, but, yeah, I went to Russia three times. And I've been to during that on one occasion, I went to Crimea during that time. I took a 27 hour train to Crimea from Moscow. And then I went to Donetsk twice on those trips. And that's in eastern Ukraine. Um, yeah. So that was an incredible trip or the yeah, three trips for me, and I've written extensively about those um, well, trips. Well, tell me a little bit about it. I mean, what were the highlights? What were the lowlights? Were you at all fearful? Uh, do they just let any American go? Do you have to be a writer that writes the plot to scapegoat Russia? Uh, give me a little more detail about those Russia trips. Yeah, well, good question. So first of all, to go to get to Russia, and this was has been true even before this all started, you needed a visa. You need a visa to go to Russia, but it's not hard to get a visa. Anyone can do it. I actually, the first time I went, which was in November of 2022, so that was almost a year ago now, I just went through a an agency. I Googled, you know, Russia visa, and I found an agency. I paid 500 bucks to it, and they help you fill out the form and all that. And I got a visa. I got a three-year multiple entry visa, and I and I went to Russia. So I didn't get in for any special reason at all. I I went again as any tourist would go. Now, once I was in Russia, you know there were some Russians who helped me get into Donetsk, which is trickier. That's for sure trickier because of the war. Obviously, that's in a war zone. So that's trickier, and I did need to. At that point, my journalistic credentials were important to get into Donetsk. But getting into Russia was not any particular trick, except that after Russia intervened in Ukraine in February of 2022, um, all, you know. The U.S. and the West imposed these incredible sanctions on Russia of a type we never saw, even against even against the Soviet Union, at least not not since World War Two. 
And uh, so you can't fly, amongst many other things, you can't fly to Russia directly. You used to be able to take a, a plane from New York to Moscow. You can't do that anymore. So I had to fly through Istanbul on Turkish Air and then fly into Moscow. And the other thing is you have to bring all the cash you need for your trip, for everything, because Russia's been totally cut off from the Western economic system, meaning you can't use a credit card there, can't use your ATM card there. So you got to bring a mound full, full of cash that you convert into rubles and that you need for your whole trip. So you got I, I, I ran out of money at one point wow. because, you know, things were a little more expensive than I thought and the ruble, you know. It's funny, whenever I'm in a foreign country, the foreign currency feels like monopoly money. I tend <laughs> to spend it a lot quicker. But anyway, um, but, but, but what I will say in terms of a highlight of the trip, of, of all three trips, were the Russian people. They were very, very friendly and very kind. And honestly... They were especially kind when they found out I was an American. Wow. They love Americans. Even despite all of the, uh, you know, acrimony between the two countries. And wow. I was very surprised that it's a very Western, at least where I was at. You know, I was in Moscow, St. Petersburg. Of course, everyone knows those cities. Those are the two most famous cities in Russia. And but but you know that that's only in one time zone. Do you know Russia has eleven time zones? Mm. It's the biggest country in the world you know, in terms of landmass. But in any case, in Russia, uh, first of all, most of the menus were in English, or at least had English. You know, it was in Russian, but also had English. Uh, many people spoke English. I went to a, a Russian who I just met. She took me out to an opera in St. Petersburg. They had English subtitles scrolling over the stage. Can you imagine? Wow. Now, by that point, I, I was probably the only one who needed them because of the sanctions. I mean, obviously, <laughs> a lot a lot less foreigners were, from the West were coming there. But the point I'm trying to make is that they're not anti-American or anti-West. And as I mentioned in the book, you know— since Peter the Great, Russia has wanted to be part of Europe. They wanted to be part of the West. And that was true after the collapse of the Soviet Union. They thought they were going to be admitted back into the West. They'd be admitted into Europe. Um, and that never happened. Not because they didn't want it. Because the West rejected them. And that that's the truth of it. This, this bad relationship we have with Russia is completely unnecessary and completely manufactured on our end, not on their end. In fact, as I mentioned in my book, after 9-11, the first world leader to call Bush to offer condolences and help in the war on terror was Putin. Now, look, we're on the same page on this one, and I won't belabor the point because the audience has heard me go on and on about this for a long time and have a series of guests that have. But let me just ask the obvious question and get you to respond to it. A lot of people are hearing you say this, and they think you're crazy. I mean, the history that they're familiar with, the recent history, is that Vladimir Putin 
and Russia invaded a sovereign neighboring country that never attacked them. How is Russia not the bad guy in this scenario? Yeah, well, and that's something that I learned a lot about when I went to Donetsk and I went to Crimea, which are very much in the, you know, they're in the hot spot of all this. So as I mentioned when I started talking about Russia and my trip, this war started in 2014. And the war started when the U.S., and it was the Obama administration, and Joe Biden was vice president, and he was very instrumental in this, when they backed a coup d'etat in Ukraine, which brought to power a very anti-Russian and right-wing government, which did and does collaborate with openly neo-Nazi forces, which back then the mainstream press would from time to time discuss that fact that there were neo-Nazis there. Of course, now the press tries to deny that, but they do exist. Now, why is that important? Because the government, the right-wing government, as I said, was very anti-Russian, but not just anti-Russia. They were against their own Russian population. Mm. They outlawed the Russian language, which many people particularly in the East, speak in Ukraine. Um, And when that happened, when they started, and they started, there were pogroms that were carried out as well. The most famous one being in Odessa, where a trade union building with Russian-speaking people in it was set on fire with them in it. Uh, At least 48 people were killed. Mm. And when this sort of thing started happening, the Russian-speaking population, first of all in Crimea, which had always historically been part of Russia except for a brief period when Khrushchev gave it to Ukraine in 1954. But it's a very Russian area, and I I can tell you that because I was there. In 2014, when this starts happening, Uh, Very quickly, the Crimeans held a referendum in which they overwhelmingly voted uh, to rejoin Russia because they didn't want any part of this. They didn't want their language being Mm -hmm. suppressed. They were afraid that there would be more pogroms um, and killings. So they went back to what they considered to be Mother Russia for protection. And that was portrayed as an annexation by Russia. And the the referendum was downplayed as somehow being unfair or whatever. But it it, it reflected what the people wanted. I can guarantee you that. Go to Crimea. First of all, people are very happy there to be back part of Russia. Uh, But it is a very Russian um, place. And, again, it makes sense, frankly, for them to be part of Russia in any case. But also, um, around the same time, Two republics in Ukraine in the east, the Donetsk, which I visited, and Luhansk, for the same reason Crimea did, they voted, they had their own referendums in which they simply voted to be autonomous, not to join Russia, but to become an autonomous country. Like, you know, because again, They felt Ukraine, the government in Kiev by that point, did not have their best interest in mind, which they didn't. 
And once they did that, the government in Kiev said, well, you can't leave. They declared war on those two regions, and they attacked those regions. They attacked their own people in those regions. And by the time, by the time Russia intervenes in February 2022, 14,000 people had died in that conflict. Uh, no, it's, it's incredible. Uh, Dan, let me run through a couple of other um, issues with you before we run out of time here. Obviously, uh, I think people who are familiar with your record, or even folks that aren't but are hearing you today, they could probably tell you're a fairly left-wing guy. Yet you wrote a book recently called Cancel This Book, The Progressive Case Against against cancel culture. So often it seems it's folks on the right that are always going on and on railing against cancel culture. What is the progressive case against cancel culture? If people are going to engage in misogyny and racism and xenophobia and all these horrible things, why shouldn't they be canceled? Well, certainly, you know, It depends, you know, as I mentioned in the book, obviously, if you're a Harvey Weinstein and you rape people, yeah, go ahead and cancel those people. But the problem is people are being canceled not for terrible things like that. They're being canceled for misspeaking. And the book was actually written. It was inspired by an event that happened in my hometown here of Pittsburgh where a peace activist named Molly Rush, who'd been a peace activist, she's 80-something years old now, been a peace activist for over 50 years. She helped form a peace and justice group here over 50 years ago called the Thomas Merton Center, which still exists. She put out a tweet, or not a tweet, she put out a Facebook post in 2020 during the height of the uh, BLM protest. Uh, that simply said it was it was actually she reposted a, a meme that said it had a picture of Martin Luther King and it said never looted, never rioted, change the world. She simply reposted that. And she got all kinds. I mean, immediately there was a a pile up of her on social media being her being called racist. And people saying she, you know, she needed, I mean, people were calling for her to be canceled. They didn't use that word, but they were calling for the Thomas Merton Center that she helped found 50 years ago to dissociate from her. And the Thomas Merton Center did disassociate from her. They put out a letter, an open letter that they published on Facebook and sent to all their members, including me. I'm a member of the Thomas Merton Center saying we no longer associate with Molly Rush. And they took her name as a co-founder off their website because of one meme that, by the way, she took down off of Facebook very quickly once people piled on and she apologized. But as I mentioned in the book, when you apologize for these things, it only gets worse, right? right? Yeah. That's, that's a, you know, And so my, my whole thesis based on Molly Rush, but there's, Thousands of Molly Rush stories in this country it is that the left is eating itself by 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 destroying people's careers and reputations over a slip of the tongue or a, a meme they repost 
And, and there's no there's no salvation or redemption for those people. There's no forgiveness, even when they say they're sorry. And and I I compare it to the witch trials. It's it's this is not healthy for a society, and it, it isn't healthy for the left. And and by the way, what the left has done through this is they have, in many ways, destroyed themselves. The Merton Center. It exists on paper, but it's been largely destroyed. And I know of many stories that are like that across the country of groups that have mm. just gone away over things like this. Uh, let me end with this, Dan. Um, are you seeing more recent examples of modern cancel culture over this uh, Palestinian issue? Uh, I was very troubled in France to see that they actually have prohibited legally any demonstrations of support in support of the Palestinians, and irrespective of what people may think of the Palestinians or even Hamas, I think people should have the right to express it. Are you seeing renewed cancel culture over this issue? Oh, yes. I mean, um, this, and again, I have a whole chapter in the cancel culture book on Palestine because this this is one of the big things people are canceled over. Um, people, yes, have lost uh professorships over this norman finkelstein who actually his um you know his whole family was affected by the holocaust and the concentration camps he lost he's, he hasn't had a job in years because he's pro-palestinian and you're seeing that happen now with you know people being attacked for being pro-palestinian there was a big uh yeah even before you know the events of of last weekend there was an event in Philadelphia a couple of weeks ago called Palestinian Rights, W-R-I-T-E-S. And it, it was a, a weekend event at the University of Pennsylvania focusing on Palestinian authors who spoke throughout the weekend. That was attacked as being Nazi. Literally, there was someone who rented, uh, you know, this moving billboard that went around the conference you know, claiming the people were Nazis because they were Palestinian and pro-Palestinian. So this thing is crazy. Yeah, this is one of the more fraught issues uh, in terms of cancel culture, for sure. Dan, let me end it there. I uh, appreciate the time. I hope you'll come back again soon. A lot of other things that I'd love to ask you about. Frank, it's always a pleasure. You're a great guy, and anytime I'll thank, come back. Thank you. If you want to comment on any portion of our conversation, you're welcome to do so. 800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222. This is The Other Side of Midnight. Straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight. Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. The heart is a blue. There's no room, no 
Those of you that watch Billions, if you've seen, I think we're down to the final two episodes of the whole series. If you saw the last episode, they have this is the this is the song that plays in uh, at a very pivotal moment in the last episode. I am uh, really loving this season. I have to tell you, my wife and I watched it on Friday, and I think the season is stellar. A lot of dramatic moments. I think it's really quite interesting. So, that's just me. Hey, I uh, want to thank a lot of you that have been asking after our cat, Bathsheba. She is taking her weekly chemotherapy treatments. And uh, unfortunately, last week or the week before, they did find that she lost a pound, which is not great. And they're hoping that it's because she's not hungry because of the medication that she's taking and not because she's dying. So, they've uh, given her this appetite suppressant, excuse me, appetite stimulant. And uh, we've noticed that uh, that she appears to be eating a little bit more over the last week. We'll see how she does when she goes for her weekly chemo treatment tomorrow. All right. Those of you that are holding, I don't want to give you 10 seconds to speak. So if you wait till the top of the hour, we'll let you speak for a few minutes and then, well, not a few minutes, but, you know, a reasonable amount of time. And then uh, we'll also do commendations coming up in just a moment. 800-848-9222. Got a lot of other fun stuff coming your way, including the great Gnome Layden. Commendations, Gnome Layden, and more still to come on the other side of midnight. You can join our Facebook group. Just search us on Facebook, Morano Radio Fans and Haters. Until next hour, keep asking questions. This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Now, here's Frank Morano. other side of midnight we're off to the races it's monday start of a brand new week thanks for starting your week with me we're going to do commendations in just a moment but let me run through a few of your calls real quick you're kind enough to call the least i could do is uh, get to you rather than force you to stay on hold in perpetuity 800-848-9222 accommodations coming up in a moment let me say hello first to ed who is near lake placid ed how near lake placid are you 
35 miles. Okay, that's pretty near. A lot closer to Lake Placid than I am. Correct. Uh, thank you. I, I, <laughs> love you. Love your show. Thanks. Uh, last time I called WABC was 30-odd years ago, and Jay Diamond hung up on me. Oh, you know, Jay listens to this show from time to time. If he's listening, I'm not sure he'll remember the call. Why did Jay hang up on you? I was 22, and the, 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 it's WABC. I, I'm, I'm going to talk. And oh, you got nervous. Me, the, the, you got nervous. Yes. I see. Yeah, okay. yeah, yeah. All right. Yeah. So, um, uh, What's on your mind today, Ed? I would like for uh, WABC to get the Mets contract next time it comes around. <laughs> Ed, you and me both. Uh, I'm a Met fan. I'd love to see it. I I don't know. Uh, yeah. You know, I don't have a lot I, of say. I, I, I recall. I, I recall. Uh, I recall. Um, 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 Bob Grant just. Oh, the Yankees are going to be, and I can't do my show. But come on. Yeah. I mean, look. did they need money? He's got money. CBS. You know, come on. Do do a local, do a local Mets home game. Pre-game, post-game type thing, and I, I would, I would love it. I, I think that would be a hoot. But uh, I don't know if that's in the cards. I don't know when the Met contract is up. I, look, I'm a Met fan. I'd love to see it. All right, all right, Ed. Thank you. There you go. Put it in the radio suggestion box. There it is. Eight hundred eight four eight ninety two twenty two. I want to make clear. I don't have any juice on any of the radio stations that we're on right now. KMOX, WCBM, WABC, WFDF. I have almost no not almost, no, I have no say in what goes on at any of these radio stations. So if you're going to call up and say, hey, I don't know why uh, the radio station you're on doesn't do blank. Neither do I. I have no idea. I, I can maybe have some influence over the four hours of this program. That's about it. I'm like a person of no consequence. 800-848-9222. Gary is in the live free or die state in New Hampshire. Hello, Gary. Yes, I have three questions. Uh, by the way, that was an outstanding guest. Uh, oh, here thanks. It goes. I don't know if you, I don't know if you can answer it, but here it goes. Um, uh, are black uh, people, uh, colored people allowed in Russia? I, yes, I believe they are. Okay, but you never see them on uh, in the TV. This that, and that's why I'm saying, is it like uh, the government promotes racism, or what do you think? Yeah, I I, I don't know. I, I honestly I don't know. I uh, okay. I, I I couldn't tell you. Okay, next one is this: the uh, the Russian people are they scared to death of knowing that Vladimir Putin uh, could use nuclear weapons and uh, on Ukraine, which is their next-door neighbor. And, of course, we know the radiation could go right into Russia. Aren't they scared to death? You know, again, I don't speak for the Russian people, but I would think, yes, I think it's a very real concern, not only the nuclear fallout from an attack on Ukraine, but what would be the likely reprisal from other Western nations. Right. And last question is this. Uh, with all the sanctions that's been done on Russia and so forth, my question is this. I mean, I'm surprised nobody even asked it. How do Russians live? 
Do they go to the supermarket like we do, or is it all about rationing? They can only take uh, so much of fish, w- meat, Well, look, potatoes. the economy, if you look at the numbers, the economy has shrunk a little bit uh, due to the sanctions, but not, not irreparably. What they've been doing is they've been using this uh, oil that they're not selling to us to sell to India and China and other places like that at a bit of a discount. So the Russian economy is not paralyzed because of these sanctions. They are hurting a bit, but it's far from paralysis. Thanks, Gary. 800-848-9222. Ron is in Michigan. Hi, hi, Ron. Hello, Frank. That was a great interview. Could you, could you spell that Dan's last name, though? Uh, Kovalik. K-O-V-A-L-I-K. Okay. And uh, it, it, Camo X, you know, it's really great you get Camo X. Because I, I, you know, a lot of times so much static, you don't come in on the other station. But it's really great that you ha- have Camomax. It's great that you have guests like you just had. And you know, uh, you know, I, I'm totally left wing. But you know, you, and you're uh, kind of like you're kind of like Smirkanish. But uh, you're a really great guy, Frank. And you have great interviews. And I hope you and your your wife and baby Carmen, you know, have a great. Uh, a great day in life, all right? Well, that's nice of you. Thank you, Ron. Appreciate it. But well, you're while welcome. you're in Michigan, check us out. See if you can get us at uh, AM 910 as well, the Superstation. We'll be getting more and more uh, feedback from our listeners on WFDF. Love our Detroit area listeners as well. 800-848-9222. We'll do commendations in a moment. But first, let me say hello to Greg in Ohio. Hi, Greg. Hi, Frank. I have two questions for you. I'm uh, ready. Your last uh, guest was talking about Crimea. Mm-hmm. What's to, what's to say that can't happen here in this United States? Me, meaning what? I mean, uh, the, uh, that Joe Mexico Biden loses the election. He's got the FBI weaponized, and he just takes over. Meaning, well, so Crimea. What happened there was. Um, Russia annexed Crimea, but most of the people living in Crimea were Russian. I mean, this, the, you know, almost the exact same thing happened with this country in the 19th century with Texas. Most of the people living in Texas were American, and initially they split off from Mexico. They were their own country for 10 years, and then most of them wanted to be part of the United States, so the United States annexed Texas. I think that's the closest analogy to what we saw in Crimea. I just think a lot of people in this country are scared to death of our government. Well, I think you're right, Greg. And look, uh, there's a reason. I don't know if you heard the show. I, I guess it was on Thursday or maybe it was Wednesday where the FBI has more DNA on file than they've ever had. And they're getting to a point in the very near future where almost everybody's DNA will be on on file. The only country that's giving us a run for our money is China. And I have a lot of real concerns about that. And I was not the only one. There are a lot of other people that did, wasn't weren't crazy about a federal law enforcement agency having this kind of information about us. Uh, Greg, thank you. Uh, squeezing one or two more here, and then we'll get to commendations. Walt is in Yonkers. Hi, Walt. Yeah, yeah, Frank. Um, your prior guest. Um, I'm married to a Nicaraguan, and I know these people since the seventies. You know, the Somoza and all that. And um, what he failed to mention was the Chinese and Russian influence in Nicaragua 
and the dictatorship of Daniel Ortega as the president and his wife as a vice president. Yeah, I mean, look, I don't view Daniel Ortega in the with the rose-colored glasses that uh, that Dan Kavalik did, but I think part of it is because my politics are a little bit different than Dan's. You know, the guy, I don't know if he considers himself, um, you know, a socialist, but he's a very left-wing guy, so it's only natural that if there's a very left-wing government, he would view them as more sympathetically than, uh, than I do. Uh, but uh, I'm glad you mentioned that, Walt. Thank you. Okay. Thanks. 800-848-9222. 800-848-9222. Stephen is in California. Hello, Stephen. Hello. Hey, so uh, I just would like to say that uh, most Americans that have never been to Russia should really not uh, espouse the uh, the party line that they hear from the uh, mainstream media. I am a uh, uh, U.S. Well, citizen. Stephen, and and Stephen, I'm going to have you say there. whatever you want, but uh, but but the first part of your statement—that's part of the reason why I've made such an effort to find alternative views to oh, what yes, you Frank, see on in CNN I, I and New York Times. Much I appreciate very much what you've said. And, and, and how you handle it. Uh, uh, I'm really just talking to the people sure, out there. Sure, go ahead, yeah. Uh, and, and, and I have family in, in Poland and Ukraine and Russia and Belarus, and uh, I have a permanent residency over there, and I live over there, and it has become much more difficult. The Russian people are fantastic people. They're, uh, they're surviving and they're thriving. And, uh, and I think that what, what uh, America doesn't realize is until the, 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 last, the other shoe drops, American people aren't going to realize how badly America is uh, positioning itself in the rest of the world. Um, and other than that, uh, you know, uh, Crimea was a autonomous republic with its own parliament and its own president. So when it voted to rejoin Russia, it had every right. And, and, and the Ukrainian people really wanted to join the EU because they were just tired of the corruption, had nothing to do with NATO. But, of course, it's the politics and it's the people in power over there that make all the, the wrong decisions. And so the people are suffering everywhere, unfortunately. Um, uh, it, 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 you know, it's really not much different than what we feel. S- Stephen, you're breaking up a little more. bit. You're breaking up a little oh, bit. You want to try and make a last point uh, and we'll hopefully hear it? It's, it's not much different than what's happening here with our Uniparty. Our, our rhinos and our demos. Well, it's very so. interesting, Stephen. Uh, thank you. Look, I, I, um, I am very critical of American democracy, but make no mistake, I would take American democracy uh, such as it is over anything that they have in Russia any day of the week. I mean, if you the stories you hear about journalists being silenced, about uh, people being dissenters, in some cases being locked up, about political prisoners being charged, about uh, trumped-up charges for foreign journalists. I mean, you know, things in this country could be better. They're not as bad. Uh, so when um, I appreciate Stephen's perspective, and I've never been to Russia, so I can't I can't say that he's wrong, but I think he's wrong. I, I meaning I don't think it's as similar the Uniparty in the United States versus of political repression in places like Russia. But look, I, I think you don't have to think Russia is this peace loving Jeffersonian democracy where everybody's got you know a great amount of human rights in order for us all at the same time. To think that we shouldn't be at war with Russia. So I don't think the two thoughts are mutually exclusive. Janet is in Manhattan. Hi, Janet. 
Oh, hi, Frank. Uh, this is a question I would have loved to ask your guest, but I guess he wasn't taking calls. But maybe you could answer it. I've been wondering, for, and he's an expert in international law and uh, human rights. Um, and maybe you could answer it, though. I've been wondering about Venezuela. And I understand we, I don't know what we means. I guess American banks are holding $6 billion of Venezuelan money. Now, by what right do they do that? Doesn't that violate international law? And how did the money get there? Did Hugo Chavez make a mistake in depositing money in an American bank? He should have used a Swiss bank. I think he could have gotten, they could have gotten it back by now. But, um, by what right? Is it the banks that are holding the money and the government, our government is telling them don't give them the money back? I mean, how well, can they do that? You know, it's a, it's a, the similar situation with the funds that were frozen with Iran as a result of, uh, as a result of sanctions. And essentially what the United States does with hostile entities, Iran, North Korea, Russia, other countries that are on the receiving end of American sanctions, my understanding, mm-hmm. and I don't pretend to be an, uh, in, in, an expert in either international trade or how these transactions work. But my understanding is that um, any company that does business with America, they basically have to play by Americans, America's rules. So even if it's not a um, an American bank, if there are funds that were routed through a bank that has anything to do with the United States, then you would see uh, you would see them have to adhere to American sanctions in order to continue to do business uh-huh. in the United States. That's my understanding. But then they're holding someone else's right. money. That's I true. Would think that's totally you, illegal. Well, yeah, I mean, you're right. I mean, look, and the Iranians had a big problem with it because um, not just the six billion that we gave them in this latest round. But the uh, two, the several billion that uh, that we that we gave them, or that we unfroze of their own money, in uh, about five or six years ago, they were they were peeved for exactly what you point out. They said, "This is our money. You don't have a right to uh, to to hold it." Now, in the case of Iran, the American contention was, and I think it was similar in Venezuela, although I have to look into that one. But the American contention was. The Iranian government that was owed that money was the Shah's government. And uh, because there was a revolution and a change in government, that money wasn't owed to them. I thought it was very creative, but I didn't think it held water, and most other people didn't need it. No, it certainly doesn't. Janet, thank you. 800 848 9222. All right. Uh, You know what? Rather than run through these commendations now, let me take a break. We'll do them in a moment. This is The Other Side of Midnight, and we'll continue with your calls after commendations. Straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. And when October goes, the snow begins to fly. Above the smoky roofs, I 
watch the planes go by the children running home beneath a twilight sky oh for the fun of them when i was one of them and when october goes the same old dream appears and you are in my arms to share the happy years i turn the great very Singing about what happens when October goes. Uh, if you ever want to know what kind of music we're playing on our show, uh, you could join our Facebook group, Morano Radio Fans and Haters. That's uh, M-O-R-A-N-O Radio Fans and Haters. Uh, and that's meant to be a forum for discussing what we do on the show, criticism of the show, thoughts on our guests, uh, thoughts on stories that we bring up on the show. Uh, over the last week, it has almost exclusively become a sounding board for what's happening in the Middle East. In spite of my best efforts, I've been trying to make it so that everyone that wants to say something about what's happening in the Middle East can do so but uh, and make sure that people that have other interests or commenting on other interests or want to see fewer Israel posts can still scroll through. I have failed so far in that mission. The one thing I would ask, though, is before you post something new on on not just this subject, but any subject, is, ask yourself, is there already a relevant post on it? And if there's a relevant post, maybe just comment on that rather than post 12 new posts all on the same subject. You see what I mean? So I'm not going to uh, I'm not going to police this too much because you know I'm a free speech guy. As long as it's ostensibly related to something that we do on the show, I like to give people pretty much you know free reign. But I mean, just think of the other users, right? They it, there's a, a lot of people interested in discussing Israel. So why not just comment on the posts that are already there? It's same thing if you want to talk about uh, Dan Kavalik or uh, Jeffrey Gurian. Or anything else that we cover on the show. But, uh, you know, it's up to you. Do what you want. Without further ado, it is time for... The Other Side of Midnight presents... Commendations. I must begin by commending Luke Farator. This man is an impressive man. This is a 21-year-old computer science student... And he won a global contest to read the first text inside a carbonized scroll from the ancient Roman city of Herculaneum, which had been unreadable since a volcanic eruption in 79 AD, the same one that buried nearby Pompeii. And this breakthrough could open up hundreds of texts from the only intact library to survive from Greco-Roman antiquity. Luke Farador, who's at the University of Nebraska-Lincoln, developed a machine learning algorithm 
that has detected Greek letters on several lines of the rolled up papyrus, including P-O-R-P-H-Y-R-A-S. I mean, the Greek or Latin equivalent, meaning purple. So that's the first word that they were able to detect. And he won this competition and uh, because there was a big international competition to see who could decipher the first word. He won it. $40,000. I mean, you think of the challenges of deciphering words that are on this scroll that you really can't sift through because it'll be destroyed. And he developed an algorithm and able to do it. It's really incredible. All right. I want to give a commendation to Luke Farator. And to celebrate World Mental Health Day, which was a few days ago, which is the International Day for Global Mental Health Awareness, Advocacy Against Social Stigma, we want to tell you the story of Giovanni Casale, who came up with the idea of transforming his ancestral town into an art therapy project for his son. I just love this story. A handful of American and Neapolitan tourists stand on the dirt side of a road overlooking the valley below them. Giovanni Casali, a flamboyant 57-year-old, is in the middle of the road wearing a collapsible black top hat and a green military jacket. He's about to begin the tour of his art village. In between the mumbling of the tourists, someone screams and jumps out of the way of something on the ground. Someone exclaims, oh, it's just a worm. Relax. Giovanni lunges forward and gets on his hands and knees and says, no, 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 don't touch it. He starts to pretend to kiss the worm and explains that worms are good for not just the town, but nature as a whole. He holds the worm up. Does anybody want to kiss him? Maybe if you're lucky, you could turn it into a princess. This man. Giovanni Casali is the founder of this unique art project in the foothills of this mountain range in the southern Italian region of Campania. And over the past several years, he and many artists that he's invited to his adopted village have turned this once gray and depopulated place into an outdoor museum. His whole inspiration is partly to bring back life to the village where his family came from, but also to create art therapy for his son, Pasquale, who suffers from encephalitis. Encephalitis is a condition that causes brain swelling and most commonly affects young children and the elderly. The causes aren't always known, but it can be caused by bacterial, fungal, or viral infections, as well as issues stemming from a person's immune system. So Pasquale's undergone a whole bunch of surgeries as part of his treatment. This resulted in him losing some of his cognitive abilities and a spark that his father said was once there. So after moving to Volano more than a decade ago, Giovanni noticed that Pasquale was slowly regaining some of his spark. He recalls his son being more mentally stimulated by not just being in nature, but also the art he was creating. So basically he created an open-air museum. And he said as the art project grew, so did its effects. Volonio sits at the northern tip of the Campania region of southern Italy. About 25 kilometers south of the village is an area of Campania that's become famous over the past few decades for the illegal dumping of toxic waste that the locals have dubbed the Land of Fires. Volonio's proximity to this area is not lost on anybody. 
ecological preservation has become a main tenet of this project. So I love this. I love that it seems to be helping his son. I love that he's gotten a dozen artists to participate in this. I love that they're transforming Valonio into something really beautiful from something that was gray and desolate. I love that he's uh, not forgetting about his ancestral homeland. It's wonderful. I think this is uh, just great. Hats off to you, Giovanni Casale. I do commend you. I must also commend... Lewis, a nine, I don't have his last name, just Lewis, a nine-year-old running sensation who has just set a new record for his age group for a five-kilometer course. He ran the 5,000-meter distance in 17 minutes and 40 seconds uh, last Saturday. This is incredible. He beat the previous record set in California by a phenomenal 13 seconds. So, Lewis, I do commend you. I must give a, a very sad, posthumous commendation to an actress that I just loved, and that's Piper Laurie. Uh, one of my favorite movies is The Hustler. I like both The Hustler and The Color of Money. The Hustler is a little deeper. Uh, the Hustler is a little sadder in some respects mostly because of the incredible portrayal that Piper Laurie brings to that. But she was more than a one-hit wonder. This was a three-time Academy Award-nominated actress whose career spanned seven decades. She was not only in The Hustler, she was in Until They Sail. And uh, she, by all, Children of a Lesser God, that was her third Academy Award nomination back in the 80s. She was in Carrie. Those of you that like horror, that was a movie we didn't get to mention in our horror panel on Friday. She won an Emmy Award alongside James Woods and um, James Garner in a 1986 TV movie. And she was an actor's actor. Lived in New York for a time, did a lot of theater out here. And uh, she's really going to be missed. Uh, God, uh, you know, God bless her. Condolences to her friends and her family. But kudos to her for a life well lived. And I am happy to give her a posthumous commendation. I mean, I would rather give her a living commendation, but such as such as it is. I want to give a commendation to our nephew, Eric Pecan, who had his christening yesterday. Eric is the son of my sister-in-law, Sharon, and my co-brother-in-law, James. He had a wonderful christening, not only getting that original sin washed away, but he didn't cry. At all. He was in great shape and uh, just was a delightful boy. Didn't cry in the least bit. So uh, congratulations to you, Eric, and to his parents. They had, they catered my favorite meal for the kind of the post-christening party, brunch. I love brunch. I just wish every meal was brunch. Love brunch. I want to give a commendation to Providence, Rhode Island, because Providence, Rhode Island is bucking the trend. They are defying the mob, and they have erected a Columbus statue. Yes, that's right. They have erected a statue of Christopher Columbus in their local park. It's actually technically not Providence. It's um, right outside Providence. It's Johnston, Rhode Island. And they unveiled this statue of Christopher Columbus in a local park. A few protesters turned up. They were drowned out by the hundreds who gathered to celebrate. I love this. I wish there was a nice Columbus statue in my hometown. 
And what happened was this statue had been removed from Providence in the summer of, of love, whatever they call it, 2020, after being defaced by repeatedly by vandals. And it's a beautiful piece of art. It was created for the 1892 Columbian Exposition in Chicago, marking the 400th anniversary of the Explorer's Voyage. And it was moved to Providence and remained there until three years ago. And now it's back up in Rhode Island, this time in a park in Johnstown. This is great. I, I keep trying to get my wife to allow us to put a giant Christopher Columbus statue on our lawn, but she's afraid of protesters. And, you know, we don't have the money for a giant statue. I want to give a another posthumous commendation. Uh, again, it's sad to see another great actress gone, albeit one in her 90s. I was a huge fan of The Adventures of Superman, and Phyllis Coates, to me, was the woman that created the role of Lois Lane. A lot of women have played Lois Lane. Phyllis Coates, as far as I'm concerned, I know there might have been other Lois Lane portrayals in the, t- in the uh, serials before that, but... Phyllis Coates, to me, was Lois Lane. She is the standard by which all other Lois Lanes are measured, and she has passed away at the age of 96. Um, Condolences to her and to her family. And I want to commend Noam Tibon. This is an incredible man. This is a grandfather and a retired IDF general who rescued his granddaughters from their kibbutz as Hamas attacked. They're comparing him on social media to Liam Neeson's character in Taken. On the way to rescue his grandchildren, he helped kill Hamas terrorists and then fought his way onto the kibbutz to save his family. This is a 62-year-old retiree. And it's not a surprise to me that this guy was a general in the IDF. Because this guy still seems as tough as can be. And you're not going to want to get in the way of this guy and his granddaughters. So his granddaughters were not taken. He rescued them and uh, killed a lot of bad guys along the way. I am not a Domino's pizza guy. I think you know this. But I have to give them a commendation here because I love this. Domino's unveiled a new emergency pizza program. Sending one free medium pizza when you need it most. So it's a new free pizza program for personal emergencies. Now, what kind of emergencies? Domino's isn't referring to unintended hospital visits. Instead, try to imagine the last thing that made you decide to order pizza when you hadn't planned on doing so an hour before. Perhaps you burned dinner. Perhaps the power went out. Or maybe your in-laws just dropped in without notice. Whatever your emergency situation Domino's believes a free pizza can make anything better. I think this is great. This is absolutely wonderful. And the way it works is customers enroll in this Domino's loyalty program, and they spend $8 on a pizza. At that point, you'll earn an emergency pizza credit. At the moment, the emergency pizza program is slated to run until February 11th. I I have to tell you, I don't like Domino's pizza. It's a brilliant idea. And there are so many times when you have a situation like that. And kudos to Domino's for recognizing that. Speaking of pizza, I want to commend my uh, cousin Liz, her husband Eric, her daughter Amanda, and uh, her granddaughter Vanessa for having us over on Saturday. It had been a while since we were over there. 
And uh, we got to spend some time with my Aunt Camille, and they ordered pizza. So that was awfully nice, and it was pretty good. It was a pizza place that has gotten some pretty good reviews. And then lastly, I have to commend the woman who is seemingly has the, the Midas touch, and that is Taylor Swift. Taylor Swift had her new movie come out this weekend, which I think, as I understand it, is just a filmed version of her concert. She killed it. She got a $100 million opening weekend, far and away the number one movie in theaters. I don't know what it is about Taylor Swift. I don't get it. But this is a one-woman media empire. And you know what? Good for her. Good for her. I give her all the credit in the world. Seems to be a great talent. Also seems to be a very nice person. And uh, if she can get the box office moving and get the football ratings up and get concert revenue going, I I don't know what... We should send this woman over to the Middle East. Have her have her have her negotiate between uh, the Israelis and the Palestinians. And I say that only partially tongue in cheek. Is there anything this woman can't do? Ah, all right. Uh, that is this week's edition of Commendations. If you have thoughts, comments, questions, I would love to hear them. 800-848-9222, 800-848-9222. This is The Other Side of Midnight. Straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. She keeps them always in a pretty cabinet. Let them eat cake, she says, just like Marie Antoinette. A building a remedy for Chris Job and Kennedy. And at a time of imitation, you can't decline. Caviar and cigarettes, well-versed in etiquette, extraordinarily nice. She's a killer, queen, got body genetine. Just like a baroness, middleman, China, and dying to get your mind up. Then again, incidentally, killer, killer queen. By obviously the terrific rock band Queen. The uh, obviously the first verse quotes a phrase traditionally but falsely attributed to Marie Antoinette. Let them eat cake. Uh, she says, just like Marie Antoinette. But um, today, in 1793, during the French Revolution, Marie Antoinette, the Queen of France, was beheaded. So this seemed like an appropriate song to play today. So my thanks to Matt Blaze for playing it. And uh, 
my condolences to Marie Antoinette and all of her fans out there. She's somebody that I think got a little bit of a bad reputation historically. I'm not saying that she deserves to be beatified anytime soon. I just, I don't think she was the villain that most people grew up thinking that she was. But I'm not pretending to be an expert in Marie Antoinette or French, 18th century French history by any stretch. So I hope you had a good weekend. Uh, We did, we certainly did. Busy weekend. We had softball canceled on Saturday. This is the second time that this softball tournament has been canceled. So now it's going to be rescheduled for October 28th. So you know what? My my cousin Deanna, who's a, a great person, she her husband Joe was going to play in this softball tournament. And I think his brother-in-law, or, yeah, his brother-in-law is going to play as well, which I was happy about because they're both good softball players. Great softball players, actually. And I see Deanna on Friday. She said, "Oh, okay. Is the game gonna, is the tournament going to happen?" No. And I said, uh, "Now there's a three hundred dollar entry fee, and it goes to a, a children's hospital." And I and she, I said, the, "It's going to be rescheduled October twenty eighth. And she said, "Oh, Joe can't play that day because he's got another softball game that day. He was going to use your tournament as kind of a way to warm up." Fine. Okay, I understand. And then. And again, I, I love my cousin Deanna, and this is nothing that I wouldn't say to her directly, although I didn't because I'd rather do it on the radio where you could really hurt people's feelings. But the I, I said to her, all right, I'll Venmo you back the $25 that you sent me for the entry fee. Now, what would you do there? Keep in mind, this is a tournament designed to raise money for a specialized wing at a children's hospital. Wouldn't you just say, and now I, again, Deanna's in the same boat I am. I, I think, you know, we both make a living, but only a living. Uh, wouldn't you just say, we're talking $25 here. Wouldn't you say, oh, well, I, we feel bad Joe can't pay, play. Just keep the $25. She, she said, okay. I said, I'm going to vend you, mow you back $25. She said, okay. I said, all right. Well, okay. How dare you? I Means bad enough you're leaving me now without two players. You really are going to take this money back? Fine. Fine. How dare I'll tell you what. Peter, who's been a guest on this show before, he was slated to play in this tournament. And he contributed 20 bucks. And then he, when we thought the tournament was going to be on Saturday, he wasn't able to play. So I said, oh, I'll send you the $20 back. You know what he did? He said, no. Keep it. Keep Not for me, but for the, the charity. Now, that's what you're supposed to do. So... I may invite Peter to my next second cousin's party instead of Deanna. You know, I'm sort of just kidding. Deanna is very good company, even with wanting the $25 back. But uh, so that's that. Well, the the plus side of us not having the tournament is we got to I got to take Carmine to swimming lessons. And when you know it, I guess everybody was in kind of a, a bad mood, not a bad mood, but they didn't really want to leave the house because they uh because it was raining so um he and i well i i hold him during the swimming lesson he was the only pupil in swimming lessons when we started this maybe five or six weeks ago he was one of six or seven children last week i think there were two or three of us usually there's three children 
all about two years old. This Saturday, he was the only one. And I was so proud of him. He did very well. Maybe it was because he was getting a lot more individual attention. Maybe because we reviewed a lot of the lessons that he already learned. Now, don't get me wrong. He's not doing... He's not doing the backstroke and uh, this massive uh, freestyle swim. He's not giving Mark Spitz a run for his money anytime soon. But, you know, there are things that he's getting good at. Like you, you, one of the first things you learn is to blow bubbles with your mouth into the water because I guess that's a good way to train you to be able to keep your mouth underwater while you're swimming in the future. So he's doing really well with everything. And unlike last week where he started crying right in the middle of the lesson – he did really well the whole time, and he he didn't cry at all, was having a blast, and was doing a really good job following the instructor's instructions. The only kind of blip on the, the whole thing was there's one portion of the lesson where you have to get yourself, where he has to get himself out of the pool at, using his uh, knees and his elbows and his, and his belly, and then you have to jump back in. And at one point we were doing that, you know, you you get out of the pool and then you say one, two, three, and then you jump back in. And he didn't want to jump back in. Instead, he tried to run away from me and do this game that we play at home where I chase him around and then tickle him. But uh, that was the only kind of blip on on the radar screen. And then... He wanted to walk as we were done with the swimming lesson. We, we were going and, and we're leaving. It's raining. We're done with the swimming lesson. And we're walking to our car in the parking lot. And he wants to, wants to walk. And I, he's walking on the sidewalk in front of me. And usually he's pretty good, not going in the street. But I guess maybe because he views it differently as being a parking lot, he runs ahead of me. And I'm running to catch up with him. I'm saying, Carmine, Wait. Do not do not go ahead of me. And he's not really listening. He thinks I'm playing a game. I'm chasing him. Are you having fun, pal? <laughs> Which we do at home. And uh, I'm chasing him. And keep in mind, it's raining. I'm calling to my son. He's running away from me in the parking lot. I'm holding a bag. I'm in a wet bathing suit. Uh, I'm not playing softball. I have a cousin that's asking for $25 back. And I'm chasing after my 21-month-old son by myself. And this lady is walking from her car into the YMCA. And she sees me chasing after my son. And you know what she says to me, this lady? Never saw this woman before in my life. By the way, there are a lot of people that are listeners of the show. This guy, John, comes every week. He's a listener. Hi, John, if you're listening. But... um. This lady says to me, as I'm chasing after my son, doesn't try to help. Why would she do that? She says, ah, you better you better watch him around these cars. What? Well, so I, I want to say, oh, thank you. Thank you. I would never have thought of that. I was going <laughs> to let him play with the cars. I was going to let him find the moving cars and chase them in front. I, I just don't know. What, she sees me running after him. And she says, oh, yeah, you better watch him in front of these cars. Thank you. I never would have thought of that. Now I will. Wow. Now I will. I, w- I, I would not have thought to do that, but now I will because you suggested it. Thank you, ma'am. Appreciate it. Appreciate your help. My goodness. That's right, Frank. So you're not so smart. Clearly not. It was probably that lady. 800-848-9222. Uh, Gnome Laden is here. 
but uh, we'll we'll get an update on uh, on what was what's up with him. And then we went to my cousin's in um, in New Jersey. That was fun. I mentioned we had pizza. Then I went to a dinner party at night in Manhattan, which Rachel had no interest in going to. She said, "No, I am absolutely not driving an hour or more in Manhattan to Manhattan in the rain." when we've just been out all day. So I went by myself, and it was actually a really good time. It was a lot of fun. And uh, that means I'm on a streak because I had this uh, lunch at my cousin Liz's, which means they bought the food, didn't pay. I had this dinner party at this fellow's house in Manhattan, didn't pay. And then the next day, I'm at this brunch for my nephew's communion, didn't pay. So I have now had three straight meals that someone else has paid for, which I don't think has happened in uh, five years. Five years was the last streak that went this long. So this is big. And, you know, I'm looking at the football results in the pool that, that I'm in this weekend. So far, and they didn't even play the Monday night football game yet. So far, it looks like I, I picked 10 games accurately. And by the way, a lot of long shots. Who would have thought the Jets would have beat the Eagles? Who would have thought that um, the Giants would cover against uh, the Bills? And so I got 10 wins so far. So I am on a hot streak. You, they may change my name from Superstar to Lucky over at Bally's. 800-848-9222, 800-848-9222. Johnny in Sullivan, what's on your mind, pal? Hello again, Frank. How are you? Um, uh, thank you for the email telling me I, had an, I seem to have an incredible life. That was very complimentary. Um, many years ago when I was young, I think it was 1984, my uncle, who was a college professor, back then he was one for Bucknell University in Pennsylvania, he took me on one of his student tours to what was back then the Soviet Union. And I was actually in that country for 33 days, and it was quite fascinating. Um, tremendous generation gap back then between the, the younger people and the elderly ones who survived World War II and whatnot. But basically what I learned is just, despite all the differences with the countries back then, you know, we were still in the height of the Cold War and Reagan and all that, um, the people were fantastic, and people are just basically people who have the same uh, desires that you know we do here in America. So it was it was just a really really interesting experience. But um, I don't know how the country is now under Putin, but um, back then when I was there, it was communist, and um, it, it didn't really feel so gripping, so so controlling, but um, you did have to wait online for a lot of things that you wanted that you don't have to do here in America. But um, everything's changed now, and um, the FBI, again, I think they're probably worse than the KGB. Well, I'm not going to go that far, Johnny, but I'll uh, I'll let you, if you want to give your opinion, I can't speak to the KGB, but uh, certainly I think the FBI is guilty of a lot of misdeeds. But I will say, and I, I, I don't know if this is also true with the KGB, I've met a lot of FBI agents that are great people, not only great people, but very dedicated to law enforcement and keeping people safe and playing by the rules. I think a lot of times the um, the decisions that are made that cut corners when it comes to civil liberties and things of that nature 
they're done by the leadership of the FBI, not the rank and file. So I, I am going to distance myself from that comment. All right. Uh, those of you that are holding, we'll continue to get to you. Noam Laden is here. You can email me, frank.morano at redappleaudionetworks.com. That's frank.morano at redappleaudionetworks.com. And a television icon has passed away. We'll explore it. All that and more. Your influence counts. Use it. This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Now, here's Frank Morano. This is the other side of midnight. I'm Frank Morano. You know my uh, my uncle John is uh, listening. He reminded me about the gift that we gave for the christening. Is it really a free meal if you give a cash gift? Probably not. But you would give the gift anyway, right? You'd at least get a good meal out of it. And the meal was good. I thought it was great. All right, um, a lot to get to here. Uh, a story out of Texas that I find pretty disturbing. But first, I have to mention the passing of a television icon, a woman who was not only a real beauty, but I think a tremendous comedic talent, has passed away one day before her 77th birthday. No more uh, will we get to enjoy the delightful comedic overtures of the great Suzanne Summers. Well, this is typical, getting a girl pregnant. Only a man would do a thing like that. <laughs> I always make sense. You're just not smart enough to understand me. <laughs> Look, Larry's in a real vulnerable place right now. No, he's not. He's in his apartment. <laughs> didn't get along huh? no i took her home and she started kissing me and kissing me and kissing me and wouldn't let up well what's wrong with that (laughs) 
So, unfortunately, she passed away one day before her 77th birthday after a lengthy battle with cancer. She was The family was gathered to celebrate her birthday today, and instead they're going to get together and celebrate her extraordinary life. And they put out a statement, the family did, thanking her millions of fans and followers who loved her dearly. Her husband, Alan, and her son, Bruce... Uh, were were there with her at the time. In July, Summers posted on Instagram letting her followers know about her ongoing battle with breast cancer. She said, as you know, I had breast cancer two decades ago, and every now and then it pops up again, and I continue to bat it down. This is not new territory for me. I know how to put my battle gear on, and I'm a fighter. She really was something. Now, I I think she first she had done some other things in terms of modeling and some bit parts in both television and stage shows and really I mean she really was one of the most beautiful women in the world so it's easy to see her getting work where when she's beautiful I think the the film that that first put her on the map with anyone was American Graffiti where she's the blonde in the White Thunderbird, American Graffiti, the George Lucas classic, right before Star Wars, she was the blonde in the White T-Bird, who, if I'm not mistaken, it was Richard Dreyfuss that was obsessed with her and spends the whole night in a really, and I love that picture, American Graffiti, and not just because of the radio element with Wolfman Jack, but he spends the whole night trying to track down that White T-Bird and Suzanne Somers. That was her. And, you know, her. she had sort of an ignominious end to her tenure with Three's company. As I understand, at least this is what's been publicly reported, she was being paid $30,000 an episode. And this is 1980. This is when $30,000 was $30,000. And she wanted a salary increase. And this is something that I think her uh, husband had urged her to seek. And look, I think she deserved it. But she wanted a salary increase from $30,000 an episode to $150,000 an episode. She wanted to be paid the same as John Ritter, as well as 10% of the show's profits. They wouldn't go along with that. And she left the show. And she did, she had some peaks and valleys. She did a lot of other TV shows. She was on a sitcom that I really enjoyed which was geared towards younger people, uh, step-by-step, where she was Patrick Duffy's wife. That went on for a while. She was terrific on that. She had a short-lived talk show, which did not do so well. But she was actually on step-by-step longer than she was on Three's Company. She was on step-by-step for all of seven seven or eight years. But one of the things with Suzanne Somers, like a lot of people, and I guess maybe this was true of William Shatner prior to Boston Legal, she almost became better known for being a personality than for the acting that she was doing. She certainly did do a lot of acting. She had a small part in the film uh, Serial Mom, which was very funny. She did some other films. She did some other uh, TV shows. But she became better known as kind of an infomercial pitch lady. She wrote many books. I guess you'd have to say her claim to fame was the thigh master, which I think a lot of people do take issue with how effective that actually was, given the parameters that uh, that she suggested. But 
Part of the reason people were so eager to buy it was because of the way Suzanne Summers looked. And she said this is what she did to get that incredible physique. Everyone bought the Thighmaster. And she was great at selling it, not only on QVC and the Home Shopping Network, but she would go on talk shows. She would go on uh, Arsenio or The Tonight Show, and she would really effectively sell this product. Now, one of the things that you're going to hear, I I think one of the things that happens with people when they die is they spend a day or two mourning them and celebrating them, and then they look at the more controversial aspects of her life. She said a lot of controversial things. She was one of these people, I almost put her in the Carol Alt category. I'm not saying Carol Alt subscribes to any of these beliefs, but uh, or the Robert F. Kennedy Jr. category, where she said and and advocated a lot of things when it came to health that were out of the medical mainstream, One of the things that she was really into was bioidentical hormones, and she wrote a whole book, Ageless, The Naked Truth About Bioidentical Hormones, and a lot of doctors were took issue with that, and they said that the treatments that she was advocating for, especially for menopausal women, were not only not effective, they believed that they were harmful. She also was a big advocate for alternative cancer treatments and her book about that and the alternative cancer treatments that she pursued for herself was heavily criticized by the American Cancer Society. My view is I think she really did believe this. I really think she was helping people, whether she was or not. I have no idea. I'm not a doctor, but I can't speak to any of the controversial aspect of what she said. I will just say uh, she was a, I think, a comedic genius. I think her role as Chrissy on Three's Company was just outstanding. Now, I need your full name. Christmas Snow. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, yes, and snow is a fun part of Christmas, isn't it? Now, your real name, please. Christmas Snow. That is my real name. It's my dad's name, too. I see. Your father's name is Christmas. Father Christmas? No, it's Snow. But he's not Christmas. He's Reverend. Well, really, he's Luther, but nobody ever calls him that. I see. I was named Christmas even though I wasn't born on Christmas Day because my dad said that I was the best present he ever got. Oh, yes. All right. I'll put that down. Christmas... Nobody ever calls me Christmas, though. Well, in school, they used to to call me Christmas Eve and Christmas Sale and Christmas Stocking. (laughs) Even Xmas, but now... Now, everybody just calls her Chrissy. C-H-R-I-S-S-Y. Oh, no, I... uh, C-H-R-I-S-S-Y. My mother says it's a good thing I wasn't born in June because then I'd be named after Father's Day, and when my dad introduced me, he'd say, meet my daughter, Father. So uh, she's going to be missed. Uh, So what I was going to say is the two things that I think you can't take away from her, irrespective of what she was saying about toxins and uh, fluoride in the water and alternative cancer treatments, is she was very good, not just in Three's Company, but in everything she did. She had a magnetism, and she was very funny. 
But she was also one of the great beauties. I think if you're making a list of the most beautiful women that were on television in the 20th century, Suzanne Summers has to be at or near the top of that list. I mean, I think it's Suzanne Summers. I think it's Angie Dickinson. And I don't know. Is it Farrah Fawcett? Pamela Anderson? But um, she was really uh, – I'm sorry to see her go. She seemed like a really nice person. I talked to her a couple of times. I never got to interview her myself but I um, I arranged several interviews as a producer, and in the twenty or thirty seconds that we chatted before putting her on the air, seemed like a nice a nice person. She had, did not have an easy time. She had a very tough upbringing. Her father was an alcoholic, and uh, she had a tough time with that. And in spite of her TV fame. I think a lot of people knew her best from the the Thigh Master. So I uh, want to wish her, her the best condolences to her and all her family. I don't know what it is. All these great TV stars are uh, passing away. Hopefully, I mean, somebody better check on, um, I don't know. I, I don't want to say anyone's name. I don't want to jinx them. I was thinking of somebody, but I don't want to say it. 800-848-9222. 800-848-9222. Here was Suzanne Summers on with... Uh, Fox News Channel with Laura Ingram in 2018 talking about the role that Johnny Carson actually played in her career. I read in the trades, I was living in Sausalito, they were looking for a girl, a small town girl who had no idea what she looked like and didn't know who she was. And I thought, that's me. (laughs) And I got together the $25, flew to um, Los Angeles to NBC Burbank. Ignorance is, you know, is great because I didn't know there's a way to do this with agents and appointments. How old were you? 21? 19. 19. I walk in, I drive up, I was in love with Alan Hamill, so I had him pick me up and I said, I have an interview at NBC. He didn't ask. And uh, he just knew he was going to sleep with me that night. Oh. <laughs> and um, I, I come up to NBC, and why are you here? I'm here for the Dom DeLuise show. Oh, go over there and park over there. So I read, and they said, oh, very nice. We're giving you a call back. I said, great. So I go out to the reception. I, I have a call back. And uh, she said, that's good for you. And I said, what is that? She said, they're going to call you, you back. back. I'm, yeah. All right. Well, quick, where, catch on where quick, do I Suzanne. go? And now I'm her problem. She's irritated. She goes, well, I don't know. Go wait in the commissary, I guess. Uh, words that changed my life. I'm sitting there all by myself like this. Good Catholic school girl with mm. my hands crossed. Mahoney. Like a good Mahoney. Mahoney. Right. And we all, I can always tell who went to Catholic school by this. <laughs> Look at this. Threesome here. And I'm sitting there and I see over there, oh, my God, that's Johnny Carson. Oh, my God, that's Johnny Carson's coming. He's walking over towards me. He's walking towards me, hi, hi, and he says, uh, "Hey, little lady, what are you doing here?" And I said, "I have a callback because now I have lingo, right?" <laughs> so now, so now, and so then, then. How and did it... So this is Wednesday. I handed him my only thing I had, which is my book of poetry, and one credit. Which poetry, was poetry, 1973. My book on the back. I had my one credit that I was the mysterious blonde in the Thunderbird. Mm. So it's Wednesday. In American graffiti. In American graffiti. Oh yeah, of course. And. Friday night, I made my debut on television, charged a dress I couldn't afford, $76, which seemed like so much money at the time. And I thought, oh, my God, they love my poetry. And um, I hear Johnny Carson say, we've all been wondering who the mysterious blonde and the Thunderbird is in American Graffiti. And I'm thinking, you were? Because I hadn't seen the movie yet. And the curtain opened. And he just loved me because I was so innocent. Yeah, totally innocent. innocent. Yeah. So he started having me on every month for years wow. and my book of poetry became the number one best-selling book of poetry along with and Rod McEwen. Oh my gosh. 
you heard uh, Suzanne Summers or Laura Ingram uh, mention, oh, like a good Mahoney. A lot of people don't realize that was her maiden name, Suzanne Mahoney. Her husband that she's been with for the last 30 years is Alan Hamill. Her first husband, who she was only married to for three years, was Bruce Summers. That's where she got the name Suzanne Summers from, her ex-husband. It, and it, she got together with this guy as, I think, a teenager. I think she was only 19 years old. And she ends up in a relationship with this fellow. And she gets pregnant. And they decide to get married. They're only married for three years. And that the rest is kind of history. But that name is not from the husband she was married to for 30 years. It's from more than more than 30 years, since 1977. It's from the guy that she was married to for three years in the 1960s. Isn't that interesting? 800-848-9222. Here she was on uh, Suzanne Summers. Uh, excuse me. Here she was on Anderson Cooper in 2012 talking about the significance and the importance and the role of the thigh master in her Everywhere life. you go, do people still, like, mention the thigh master to you? They do. In front of your studio here, uh-huh. the uh, TMZ guy, who um, most people <laughs> my children's age think is news. Oh, yeah, I know, yeah. <laughs> he said he started using it when he was 13 years old. I said, really? Yeah, he said, that's how he got ready for hockey? I don't know. Huh, I don't know. Interesting. I'm not that into sports, so uh-huh. do you use those muscles? But anyway... <laughs> So there you go, uh, Suzanne Summers, a, a life well lived, certainly full of adventure. And, uh, you know, I'm going to miss her as a personality, no doubt about it. 800 848 9222. 800 848 9222. My thanks to Christine, our local board op, for her role in accumulating all of that audio, along with anything Kenneth might have done. 800 848 9222. Mickey is in Hell's Kitchen. Hello, Mickey. Hi, Frank. Hi. How are you doing? I just wanted to mention, um, you said that John Ritter had gotten 150000 an episode and she had 30000 Well, that's what was episode. reported, yes. Right. I think they should have all got the same. Janet, uh, Joyce DeWitt, Suzanne Summers, and just like I think all the Friends actors, I think they all got paid the same salary. Yeah, well, they, they they negotiated together, the Friends actors, oh, okay. and they made they went in as a package deal, which was very smart. Uh, Suzanne Summers, Joyce DeWitt, and John Ritter did not do that. It was each one for themselves, whatever whatever they could uh, whatever they could muster on their own. I think they were all equally uh, the same on Three's Company. They were all very very good. And I love Suzanne Summers. Same so here. I just wanted to mention that. Yeah, I agree with you, Mickey. And, you know, it's funny. When she left the show or shortly thereafter, she and uh, John Ritter did not speak for quite some time, I think close to 20 years, and they were able to patch things up and uh, kind of, you know, bury whatever hatchet existed between them before John Ritter passed away, thankfully. But, uh, yeah, they went a couple of decades without speaking. Wow, wow. But uh, yeah, that um, that was a lot more money, though. Don't you think? Uh, with John Ritter getting that much more? Yes, money? yes, I do. No, yes, no doubt about it. Out. You could see yeah, why there was and, some bad blood. I, but look, Suzanne Summers clearly she did just fine financially. Right. Thank you, Frank. Thanks, Thanks Mickey. Appreciate that. Eight hundred eight four eight ninety two twenty two. Noam Layden is here. We are on X formerly known as uh, Twitter, at Frank Morano. That's Frank, M-O-R-A-N-O. 
And you can email me whenever you want, frank.morano at redappleaudionetworks.com. That's frank.morano at redappleaudionetworks.com. If you want to see the video that I posted just a few hours before the show, you can go to my Facebook page, facebook.com slash moranofan, and uh, take a look at that video. We I showed you not only the last four Netflix envelopes that I'll ever have, but... My new pet alien. You got to see the video to know what I'm talking about. Oh, and the, you know that wine that I was trying to sell, which I'm still trying to sell? I show off the wine a little bit as well. So you could at least see the bottle, see what condition it's in. If you want to make me an offer or something, you can uh, go ahead and do that. All right. We're going to chat with uh, Noam Laden in a bit. You know, I was going to bring up the situation with Daryl George, but uh, I'm thinking I might hold this for tomorrow because... I want to hash this out a little bit and maybe take some calls on it. And I'm hearing there may be some developments on this story in the next 24 hours. If you don't know who Daryl George is, it's a fascinating case out of Texas. A black student who was essentially suspended for the length, for his hairstyle. So I, I think we're going to hold that off for tomorrow. Steve is in Jersey City. What's on your mind, Steve? Uh, Frank, you know, you mentioned that Summer's uh, last name, her surname was from her first husband. Uh, Pat Benatar has the same thing. Benatar was the name. I mean, Pat Benatar's real name is Andra Zajewski. She's from Greenpoint, Brooklyn. She's Polish. Um, her first husband, uh, his name was Benatar. She was only married to him for like, I think, like a year or two. Really? I didn't know that. Yeah. I didn't know that. Same yeah. deal, I guess. That's very interesting. Yeah, well, Benatar sounds more rocking than Andrew Zajewski. Yeah, no doubt about it. It's uh, <laughs> same thing with Ariana Huffington. She got rid of her uh, her husband pretty quickly, but she kept that name, made it into a brand all on its own. Smart people. Yeah. Hey, have a good night, Frank. Thanks, Steve. Appreciate that. All right, we'll check with Noam Laden in just a bit. Find out what's in the news. Not to be missed, Noam's news you can use straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. this song, or really any song by the Delphonics, I'm instantly transported to the film uh, Jackie Brown. It's uh, really a great film that uh, has, like all Quentin Tarantino films, a terrific soundtrack. Well, the soundtrack of our news mornings is one that is curated and narrated by 
the man with the velvet voice, Noam Layden. And I will tell you, not one, but two beautiful women in the last week or so have both told me, I just love Noam's voice. And it's easy to see why as we embark upon... Stand by for the other side of Midnight's News. From New York City, the other side of Midnight and its affiliated stations present national and international news with Frank Morano and news director Noam Layden. Their summary of the world news and personal comments. Get the rest of the story. So these uh, beautiful women, you know, of course you're going to say that, and I'm, I have stories to do. Both but, married, both married. Yeah. Um, when they see me, though, that's a whole different ballgame. So, yeah. Uh, well, <laughs> so far, none of them have made a comment about oh, your appearance. Right. But they're they're very impressed with your voice, I must tell you. All right. Hey, congratulations to you, uh, Frank. Thank you. Uh, Netflix is coming back in a big way, right? You're, uh, you're very upset that Netflix had stopped yes, its DVD I still am. service. And uh, they just announced that they're going to open brick-and-mortar stores in 2025, like an all-entertainment-type thing, uh, offering retail, dining, uh, live entertainment. They'll be called Netflix stores. And uh, initially, there was no talk about DVDs. Would they sell DVDs? If you're opening up a store, you thought, okay, what else are you going to do besides live entertainment, sell food? And – I spoke with somebody over the weekend, or I should say emailed, corresponded with them over the weekend, and they told me that, yes, in these first two stores that they're going to open, they wouldn't tell me where they're going to open them, but the first two stores, which will open in 2025, so you have to wait a little while, yes, they will sell DVDs. Oh, interesting. Yeah. But, see, it still doesn't do anything to assuage my agony over what I thought was a really great service, being able to pick almost any movie you want and then have it mailed to you, keep it for as long as you want, and then just send it back all for the same monthly fee. You watch two movies, you watch 40 movies, it's the same fee. That was the brilliance of this service. That's not present. No, they did not. I can go back and ask them that question, but it didn't sound like it. But at least there's a DVD element to this. You know, I was talking last hour about how Best Buy is doing away with their DVD. DVDs, and they're really just trying to kill off a technology which works fine for those of us that like it. Yeah. Well, I think, of course, I don't have to tell you this. Most people don't have DVD players anymore, and they just don't use them. So it doesn't make a whole lot of sense to make them. Now, overseas, the market is still pretty healthy, actually. But So I don't know what's going on with Netflix and the overseas market. This but is why America is falling behind. You yeah. see, because yeah. the rest of the world recognizes there's nothing wrong with this DVD. Let's let's not replace it with a uh, smart television that, that doesn't work when the Internet goes out. Well, that's the problem, of course. Yes. And it happens a lot. Internet no kidding. goes down. Absolutely. I had it for like two or three days. I had to wait for them to come fix uh, what was wrong. Not and me I, with I my DVDs. Lost. Not yeah. me. I, I didn't have a DVD player. If I was you, I would have been able to pull it That's out right. and watch TV. Let me know next time. I'll invite you over. <laughs> I have a pretty good collection. I got all the John Wayne movies on DVD. You do? Oh, yes. Okay. I'd like to see the John Wayne movies. Yeah. You talk about the fall of America. You lead me very nicely into my next story. Oh, High school welcome. student scores on ACT college admission tests, uh, tests have dropped to their lowest in more than three decades. 
Uh, some of this may be tied to COVID. These are the students who grew up with COVID. They missed out on a year or two years of being in class and school. But that's not all what it is. They said that most of the students that showed up to take these classes were not uh, to take these tests were not prepared in a way that they should have been. And the trend has been going in that direction for a while. But the scores were the lowest 30 years the last time those scores came out, when the official scores came out about a week or two ago. Uh, high school student scores on ACT college admissions haven't been this low hmm. in so long. And they think um, it's just a matter of schools are not preparing students for these tests in the way they once did. I saw this headline. I thought it was interesting do we know cause the ACT for people that don't know? It's basically the the cousin of the of the SAT. Right. If you don't usually take if you don't take the SAT, usually you take the ACT. Some people take both. But is a similar trend going on with the SAT exam at all? Do we know that? I didn't see that in any. Yeah, of the, the SAT scores are down as well. It's oh, not, they are. It's not a, as low as it was thirty years. You know, wasn't it? It doesn't go back thirty years. But here's the rub for students who are taking these tests: is in most places they don't really matter anymore. And they're falling away in a big way. Yeah, maybe some of the Ivy League schools you want to put that SAT and ACT when you uh, send off your admissions packet to those schools. But uh, most schools don't want them anymore. They're not interested. They don't. They say if you don't want to submit them, fine, don't submit them. Yeah, I, I've seen that. And that's the other thing that had me wondering, is this score decline a reflection of the students that would traditionally a study for the ACT or take a prep course or just take the ACT in general, not taking the prep course because they don't think it matters or just not taking it because they don't think it matters. Well, so much of the argument for getting rid of this test is some people can prepare by taking those classes and others don't have the money to take those classes. And so they said there was that inequity there. Uh, But uh, even some of the finest schools across the country say, hey, if you don't want to submit that exam, don't submit it. Now, of course, if you're the admissions committee and you're looking at students who are even and then there's a student who submitted a great ACT and SAT, you have to think that must help you on some level. Did your um, you have a son that's in college now, I right? Do. Did he take the SAT, the he, ACT, both? He, he did. And he didn't do great on either. Oh, he took both. Yeah. So he didn't submit them. Oh, really? Yeah. Interesting. And he got into most places that he applied to. Yeah. I uh, had kind of the opposite situation. My grades as a high school student were mediocre, but I did pretty well on the SAT. And I don't know that I would have gotten into the college of my choice, but for doing well on the SAT. Yeah. We, we truthfully don't know what these admission committees, committees right, do. Right. Nobody does. It's in such so secretive, so quiet, and it's so rare that one of these people speaks out about the process. So we, I would think, though, even when they say they don't want those exams, if you score well on them, it can't hurt you to submit no them. No doubt about right? it. Right? I would think it must help you. Okay. Your kid must, you must go through a lot of baby wipes in your house. That's for sure, yes. Yeah. And there is a real argument about what baby wipes are doing to our sewer system Uh and to pipes. And in New Jersey, there's a lawmaker there, a state senator, who's pushing through this bill and has been for the last six months or a year, but now really pushing hard against this, where he wants to make it so baby wipes are illegal in New Jersey. You couldn't use them. You couldn't throw them away in the toilet. So many people use those baby wipes. They chuck them into the toilet. 
And uh, it's been great for the plumbing industry because they most of what they do now is uh, clearing out these baby wipes that are stuffing up pipes all across the Garden State. Now, I have looked at this uh, closely for the last couple of years, and I have uh, thought about uh, this a great deal. But I, I think there is a distinction to be made between baby wipes, which we use you know, for our son, and when we're done, we throw them into the trash – Versus flushable wipes, right. which adults use as part of their, you know, if the, if the if the toilet paper is their appetizer, the flushable wipes are the main course. They then throw those in the toilet. Like for our son, the baby wipes we use for him, we don't throw them in the toilet. We throw them in the garbage. Right. Would those be permitted under this lawmaker's proposal? Well, that's an excellent question. The state senator who's uh, pushing through this bill says these flushables are just as bad as those wipes. And here's what he had to say. And frankly, when they come together like this, they're almost like granite. All right. So it's not something you could simply hose off or things like that. They take extensive hand work to, to actually remove. Yeah. And um, so part of what he wants to do is he would uh, charge stores that sold them up to ten thousand dollars for the uh, you know, if you violate this bill, if it goes through so far. um, Well, here's a little more from him. I'm a grandfather of a one-year-old, plus you know five other, four other grandchildren, and one on the way. Not taking on that lobby by any stretch of the imagination. If you want to be a legislator in New Jersey, you learn to compromise pretty fast. But maybe, hopefully, we can get manufacturers to address the issue. Yeah. So the issue is, is that these sewer systems are so old, especially uh, in New York, New Jersey, Connecticut, but probably for the rest of that nation, they can't handle this. It turns into granite and stone. But uh, Frank. People in New Jersey, like you, who have kids who mm-hmm. like using those flushables, which apparently really well, are not well, no, so great. no, but I want to be clear. I don't use the flushables. Okay, you use we the just wipes. use the ones that you throw away. Right. So the flushables apparently are not so great. But people in New Jersey hearing about this bill, that they essentially would ban them, had this to say. It is silly. I have kids of my own, so I don't think necessarily we should... Go ahead and ban it. Hello, so then what else are you going to use? It's easy, more easy to use a toilet paper for the babies, which will be soft for their skin too. I think it should be banned. Yeah. So. But, but you know what I don't understand is, so they're, they're proposing a ban on what they call the sale of non-flushable baby wipes. Right. I, I guess because, uh, according to the senator there, they're flushing them, which, which they're not supposed to do. Fine. But why not then, if they're still going to allow what they call flushable wipes, um, why not then use those as baby wipes? Can you can you do that? I guess you could. But uh, part of his argument, and we've heard this from a couple state senators in New Jersey, is the flushables get stuck as well. Right. That's I've I've heard that too. Uh, which is why I don't like to use those flushables. They, they say it's great for hygiene purposes, right? But not great for plumbing. Purposes. It is amazing, by the way, how many people carry these things around. I I hear about this all the time. All the time. Yeah. People uh, no really buy into it. They don't want to use toilet paper yeah. anymore. Well, no, I, I think they use it in, in in as a complement to the toilet paper. Oh, really? They use the toilet paper. That's what I'm saying. They use the wow. toilet paper as the appetizer, and then then they use the flushable oh, the I flushable wipes. And this what, is the whole process. The pe- How long do you have to spend in the bathroom? I, they're there. That's why they, they're there all the time. <laughs> right. But what what they say is, you know, and I as I'll say to all these people because the people that take on this this cause of flushable uh, wipes. They say, oh, no, no, you got to try this. You got to try this. I said, no, no, I'm okay with just toilet paper. Toilet paper's doing the job for me. What they all tell me, and my wife is like this. She does this. They say, oh, no, 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 you only think toilet paper is doing the job. 
once you start using these, you'll see how clean you're really getting. Really? That's what they okay. say. Right. But is it worth, you know, clogging all of that? No, pipes? I don't think I it don't is. Think it Maybe is. we just need to set up a bidet in every, uh, uh, you know, toilet and every see, household and every restroom. Now and, you're talking. Yeah. About, no, yeah. you know, out with the ACT, in with the bidet. Yeah, exactly. All right. Well, thank you, Noam. And now you know the rest of the story. Matt, why do you always look surprised when we cue you for, for an audio clip? You, you, you look shocked. Like you can't believe somebody would point to you for expecting audio. It's not that. It just ends very quickly. It, do, it, it does. All right. I mean, I don't know that, that I would say that that was exceptionally quickly. He was here for 12 minutes. But uh, well, I was quickly with getting it off. I mean, uh-huh. there. It's not like anybody would have known if you didn't bring it up. Very good. All right. Um, no, it's just the look on your face. You look, you look shocked. It's the look of surprise. It's, it's, it's all good. All right, eight hundred eight four eight ninety two twenty two. We're gonna do fifteen seconds of fame in uh, just a bit. You know, uh, speaking of my son Carmine, we, you know, he is obsessed. I've talked about this before with ceiling fans. He loves ceiling fans. We went to my sister in law's yesterday. <laughs> The first, he knows where all the fans are. We haven't been there in months. He still knows where all the ceiling fans are. He runs to the ceiling fan in the kitchen, and he just looks up and he says, on, on, on. He points to it, and I'll turn it on. Then he runs into the her bedroom and looks up in the ceiling fan and says, on, 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 and he'll, he'll uh, I'll turn that on for him. Then he runs right out of there, runs to his cousin Eric's room, and turns the uh, same thing, looks to the ceiling fan there, and turns, goes on, on. And I can't figure out how to turn it on. It's uh, not a switch that's on the wall, nothing that says fan, nothing to yank. I can't figure it out. And he just stands there. He just stands there and looks at the ceiling fan. And I'm so glad we don't have a ceiling fan because he would just do nothing but obsess over the ceiling fan. He would demand it's on all the time. When we go to someone's house... If they have ceiling fans, obviously the ceiling fan has to be on. But when he, when we go to our neighbor, neighbor Deborah's house, for instance, he finds the closed doors and he'll stand outside the closed door making clear he wants to go into that room. And he says, check, check, meaning he wants to check if there's a ceiling fan in that room and if it's on. When we go to my dad's house, first thing he does goes to every room that has a ceiling fan and makes sure the ceiling fan is turned on. My mom, same thing. The kid is obsessed with ceiling fans. Why do I mention this? Well, the uh, his second birthday is coming up, and my, my second cousin, Deanna, weaseled her way into that invitation, even though she demanded their $25 back. But anyway, the his second birthday is coming up, Carmine's second birthday is coming up. And I thought it would be fun to do a fan-themed birthday party. Fan decorations, fan games, fan snacks for all the kids. But my wife has been working on this. And initially she thought it was kind of a good idea, kind of a creative idea. It turns out there are no ceiling fan-themed decorations. And, and very few ceiling fan themed anything for children. Let's be honest. So I, I've been trying to do some research to figure out things that could make a good uh, ceiling fan themed birthday. So far, uh, we're not having a lot of luck. 
so far. So it looks like we may have to do a car-themed birthday party, which there is a lot of stuff for. There's decorations, there's games, there's all sorts of stuff for cars, which he also likes. He loves playing with his cars. He just, he'll sit there for a half hour, 45 minutes, he'll play with his cars. We went to the library. We took him to the library last weekend, another rainy Saturday, and he wasn't interested in any of the books at the library, even though he likes books and reading at home, especially when that means postponing his bedtime for a few minutes. But um, the first thing that he did at the library is he saw they had cars there and cars that he doesn't have at home. So he wanted to just play with his cars. So we're going to do a car-themed birthday party, but I'm looking for a ceiling fan element that we can add to this. I'm not sure what to do. What about a propeller plane? What about you would go for that? Yeah. Um, well, you know, a, a toy, you mean? Like a toy or a big – it has to be like a big ornament. Of a propellered plane that he would think is a fan. Yeah, that's that's an idea. You know, sometimes we'll pass pinwheels, and he'll think the pinwheel is a right. is so a fan. Anything that spins, it seems. Yeah, like. yeah, he does like the spinning. So maybe that. Maybe we'll try and uh, find some more propeller themed. Are you things. concerned about this obsession with fans, or is this like a? Uh, I mean, thing not that really. Go through. Did you have any obsession mm. like that? Like no. I mean, look, I don't remember. What life was like True. for me at 21 months old, but uh, I don't think so. I never heard of one, So, um, but I didn't have my every move documented on my father's radio program. So, I mean, who knows? I may have. Uh, I hadn't been seen for weeks. I could have been out at a fan convention somewhere. I have no idea. Uh, all right. 800-848-9222. We will do 15 seconds of fame in just three minutes, there's one, two, three, four, five open lines if you want to start queuing up. But I have to mention this. This is a great story. I love this story. I found it so interesting. What are the chances, if you have a fair coin, meaning heads and tails, what are the chances that that coin will land on either heads or tails? Matt Blaze. I'll say one out of two. 50-50. Right. That's, that's the conventional the wisdom. Conventional that's wisdom. what I always thought. Well, apparently, thanks to science, we now know that Matt Blaze doesn't know what he's talking about, as if we needed science to tell us that. The chances of flipping a coin and having it land on either heads or tails are not as equal as you think. Scientists have discovered, and this is important for you if you're a gambler like I am, scientists have discovered that there's a natural bias that occurs when flipping a coin. Researchers at the University of Amsterdam were hoping to get an answer to the question, if you flip a fair coin and catch it in hand, what's the probability that it lands on the same side it started so a team of experts flipped coins 350,757 times and discovered that the side that was originally facing up came back to the same position 50.8 percent of the time so while just over 50 percent seems insignificant The researchers said their findings are overwhelming evidence 
for a same side bias. So if a coin starts heads up, it's more likely it will land heads up and vice versa. So the lead author of this study said that while it might not seem like a significant advantage to many, it's more evident in the gambling world. I'll say, I wish I could figure out a trend like this on Baccarat. Well, actually, there is a trend in Baccarat because of the rules, but that's why you got to pay the commission on the banker bets, but that's neither here nor there. If you bet a dollar on the outcome of a coin toss a thousand times, knowing the starting position of the coin toss would earn you $19 on average. That's more than the casino advantage for six-deck blackjack against an optimal player. So that is very interesting. The study's findings showed compelling statistical support for the bias. Um, So I think it's really interesting. All right, so I have a quarter here. George Washington on it in 2022, relatively new. And uh, Maya Angelou was on the other side. Isn't that nice? So heads is George Washington. I'm going to flip this now. And see if and catch it in my hand and see if it and lands on heads or tails. Ready? Okay, I'm flipping it now. Up, uh, tails, tails. So goes to show you this study is for the birds. Mean means nothing. All right, uh, fifteen seconds of fame. Straight ahead. The other side of midnight. Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. To the late, great Andy B for coming up with this song. Uh, tomorrow, I've got some interesting guests coming your way. And the mail. Uh, Donovan Tildelsky is going to be here. Donovan Tildelsky has a, a fascinating, fascinating story. He is a, a, para, a Paralympic champion. A, a, um, he, he's a blind person. And he has participated in the Olympics. And it's just really a fascinating story. And he seems like a great guy. Happens to be a big listener of our show as well. And uh, we're going to talk with him about a whole bunch of things. So I'm looking forward to that. And uh, we'll go through your mail. If you have mail that you'd like read, you would, uh, you can. Email me, frank.morano at redappleaudionetworks.com. That's frank.morano at redappleaudionetworks.com. Be sure to like our Facebook page, share that video that we pointed out. You know, I found that if you send us stars 
on the videos that I put out, that that helps us out a little bit. So send us some stars. In the meantime, though, we want to give you a chance to be heard for 15 seconds as part of... The Other Side of Midnight. This is 15 Seconds of Fame. Mike! Morning, Frank. With all of Carmine's recent pool time, shrinkage may become a factor. So no diaper changes at the Y. If word gets out, it could affect his future with the ladies. E. Frank. Yes, the other day you had a lady, Frank, uh, that was talking about problems with individuals with autism. I was diagnosed with a DSM-4 condition. It's better to leave the country and not deal with the bullying that encumbers that problem. Fred. Hey, Frank, a little-known fact about Suzanne Summers. He was one of the Flory Dory Juniors. We want the Flory Dories. We want the Flory Dories. Phil. Yes, you're a mama. Rusty. Yeah. Mayor Adams just went for a colonoscopy. They found a picture of Sid Rosenberg. But the good news is now he's got his police protection. Alfredo. Terrorist. Terrorist are able to do anything, but I think Ross was right. Uh, there, there is too much propaganda. And my Uncle John. Mo- morning, Frankie. Yes, uh, I wanted to commend you on having uh, getting uh, swimming lessons for baby Cam. Uh, it'll increase uh, pool safety, especially since uh, his namesake has a pool. Uh, this, is, this is true. Thank you. Thank you. So, Talk to you soon. William. After listening to Curtis trying to fix the world's problems the last couple of days, it's good to be back to banality. <laughs> I'll take that. That is a left-handed compliment, uh, if ever there was one. Actually, I, I don't know that there was any hand in that compliment. I'll, I'll certainly take it, though. Thank you, William. I appreciate it. It's very funny. All right. Uh, 800-848-9222. I'm already getting a bunch of email on the, uh, excuse me, Frank Tamarano at redappleaudionetworks.com is what I meant to say. I'm already getting a bunch of email on the Netflix situation. Perry and uh, Jimmy and Michael, everybody that's writing to me, I will read the highlights of your emails tomorrow. A lot of people always asking, uh, when we do ask Frank anything, do you answer questions via email? Well, no. That's what we have Tuesdays for so I'm going to, if you have a good question, send it in via email, and we'll we'll read it. We'll read it, and I'll do my best to address it on air. All right, that slams the lid on things for today. God willing, I will be back tomorrow. Frank Morano, good day.